Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and I am excited for this epic debate between Kelly Powers and Stacy Turbeville. You guys are in for a treat tonight. Uh, they will be debating the important question, is God one or three divine persons? Now, before we get into the actual debate, though, let's kind of break the ice, get to know the debaters a little bit. And uh, Kelly, this is your first time on the channel. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time for this important debate. I want to hand it to you for a brief introduction, a little bit about who you are, a little bit about your ministry, and uh, what's going on, Kelly? Well, thanks for having me on here, reaching out to me. I'll be talking with Stacy again. Stacy's been on my channel in the past, and uh, he uh, obliterated me and destroyed me and annihilated me. So I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do today. But uh, knowing all silliness, it's great to be talking with Stacy again. Uh, even though we both consider each other heretics, I believe he's a nice guy, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with him again. And Lord willing, maybe something that I share tonight. Uh, we'll stick with him and maybe any others out there on uh, where I'm coming from when it comes to the triunity of God. Uh, so my name is Kelly Powers. I have a channel called uh, Brand Perspective Apologetics. I've been a Christian since the age of uh, six, from born, um, born again in 1977. I've been involved with counterculture apologetics since the early 1990s. Uh, I've been involved with churches over the years and different kinds of non-denominational, Southern Baptist, uh, different Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, Calvary Chapel here and there uh, as a lay pastor, elder, uh, involved with outreach, uh, discipleship, youth ministry, men's ministry, um, even children's ministry. Give me anything other than get me up on there singing. I think I can kind of be involved with something somewhere. And uh, I've had an online ministry with my YouTube channel for a few years. It's still pretty new. I have a website, rootedinchrist.org, with different articles I've written over the years. Uh, I've been married to my wonderful wife for 21 years, um, live out in Victoria, BC on Vancouver Island and looking forward to just hanging out, having a good chat and maybe pressing a couple points with Stacy here and there. And, uh, he'll still like me afterwards. Awesome. I appreciate it, Kelly. Uh, awesome introduction. It's a privilege to have you here. It's a privilege to have you as well. Uh, Stacy, Stacy, this isn't your first time here on the channel. Uh, you've debated here a few times before. Uh, definitely some epic, memorable uh, debates. For example, your debate with Matt Slick. You've uh, also debated Ken Hovind on here as well. So how you been? What's going on? A little bit about yourself, a little bit about, uh, you know, your ministry, if you have one, uh, so on and so forth. Stacy, go ahead. Yeah, my name is Stacy Turboville. Um, I've been uh, debating about two years. Um, I love uh, Donnie's channel. <laughs> Getting to know a lot of people. Um, it's just been fun. Um, been saved 41 years. Always went to a Baptist church, but through my studies of over 20 years, became oneness about five years ago. 
And that's what our debate is tonight. Is God one or three persons? And so I enjoy Kelly being on his channel. Um, you know, even in some spots defend him. So it's it's uh it's like a circle here. Been with been on Kelly's channel and Donnie's channel, and uh we're gonna have a good discussion tonight. Amen. Well said. Well, I appreciate that Make introduction. Make sure we season. yell at each other a lot, okay, Stacey? Yes. We got to give the crowd <laughs> a good show, okay? <laughs> we got to give them what they want, right? A dumpster right. fire. They love a dumpster fire. <laughs> That's why we'll call this a battle or a showdown. Just kidding. This is going to be a, a great debate. Uh, it, sophisticated, intelligent. I've seen you both uh, debate before. So uh, that being said, I will go over the format for the audience. Uh, we're going to be having a formal debate tonight. We're going to be starting with 15-minute opening statements. Stacy will, or um, Kelly will be starting us off with that. Then a 10-minute uninterrupted rebuttals, followed by a 40-minute discussion. We're going to have 20 minutes of Kelly leading the way, and then uh, 20 minutes of Stacy leading the way. Then we're going to have five-minute closing statements. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have a roughly 25 to 30-minute uh, audience Q&A. So please make sure you're tagging me with your questions. Keep them as relevant to the topic as possible. Uh, make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. That way I don't miss your, your questions. So again, tonight we're debating the topic, is God one or three divine persons? So uh, Kelly? We're going to hand it over to you. And um, what we usually do is I'll give you a one minute warning. Let's say once you hit the 14 minute mark, I'll just say, uh, you know, verbally one minute, then you'll know to kind of start wrapping things up. Um, but whenever you're ready, Kelly, the floor is yours. All right. Do you keep it like this or that's when normally all three in the same no, thing? I'll, I'll put you a full screen. So people at least for can. the opening, I don't know. Not yeah. that I need to stare at myself. Now, don't get me wrong. Like that. <laughs> no All right. So I got 15 minutes. I'm looking at my clock here. Okay. Hey, well, thank you, uh, Stacy, the audience out there. I pray that uh, you take to heart, uh, be a Berean, examine, examine the scriptures for yourself. Always test all things, hold fast that which is good and true. Uh, don't take anyone's word for it. Be a studier of God's word. Examine it, whether you're oneness or Trinitarian or maybe a different view out there. This view has been debated since the early church, uh, people who really comes down to who is Jesus Christ. And that really is the central figure. When you're looking at the New Testament, it's all about who is Jesus? Why does that matter? Particularly about the death, burial, and resurrection, that he was crucified, resurrected. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one of old. He came and gave his life for us, that all that would trust in him truly would have the gift of eternal life. But there's more to the package than that, too, is because Jesus had many teachings about who he claimed to be, who he came to represent. He came to represent the Father. He was sent from the Father. He would go back to the Father and things like that. And some of those things will be discussed in this discussion a little bit later. But let me open up with a few things here with, as a Trinitarian, and sometimes this happens with Trinitarians, we are claimed or accused of, if you will, to not believe that God is one. And of course, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. I would affirm that. I also would affirm that many scriptures like God said, let us make man in our image. Or scriptures like uh, the Lord Yahweh, Yehovah, rain fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven, Genesis 19, 24. And when compared to, say, Jeremiah 50, verse 40, or Isaiah 13, verse 17, or Amos 4, verse 11, 
you can see in the context that there's at least two who are being actively involved in that, who are identified as both God and Lord. So that's really important. So how does the oneness of God also work with the triunity of God? And that's really kind of like, in a way, you've got, you know, there's a simple example, but you got the Bible. Now, you may think this is one book, and it is collectively one book, no doubt about it. But when you go through it and you start reading the scriptures, Genesis all the way through Revelation, well, now you've got 66 books. So it is a composite of 66 books, but it's all together one. And so when I think of God is one, and biblically speaking, the Hebrew word echad has both the singular meaning and also a unified or composite union, uh, unity meaning. So it always depends on the context. Now, of course, the scriptures teach that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. No doubt about it. Isaiah 44, verse 24, a popular scripture that's brought up by a lot of people who oppose the Trinity or even those who might even reject the, the deity of Jesus Christ or reject who he is. They will use it to say, see, here it says Jehovah God alone. Now, the funny thing is, as a Trinitarian, I actually will point that scripture quite often to show the deity of Jesus Christ or Jehovah's Witness or someone else that would reject the deity because the Bible says in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, uh, Hebrews 1, 2, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, Revelation 3, 14, and even John 1, 3, all point to Jesus Christ being the eternal one who was a part in the process of creating all things before anything came into existence. We also see the Holy Spirit who's actively involved. We read about that in Psalm 104, verse 30, Job 33, verse 4, Genesis 1, 2. These different scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit being actively involved. And so we also have the Father. The Father is spoken of being actively involved. Isaiah 64, verse 8 talks about that the Lord, our Father, he's the maker. He's the one who molds the, the, the clay and he is the potter. We also see about that in the New Testament with Romans chapter 11, verse 36, and also 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 6, pointing both to the Father and Jesus Christ being involved with creation. So there's uh, this dichotomy where God is one, but one what? Does the Bible ever teach that God is singular and meaning only one person? I've had many debates over the years. I've talked to many people in person and also online, and I've always had the challenge, show me one scripture where it states unequivocally God is one person and you win game over. Right. And that's important. And the reason I also say this, because sometimes what happens is people say, well, where does the Bible say the Trinity? Where's the word Trinity in the Bible? You won't find that. Neither will you find a verse that says God is one person. So then now here comes down to the debate. How can God be both one God, but the father, son, and Holy spirit are all called God in the new Testament. We have the father called God in numerous places. First Peter chapter 1, 1, the Father is called God. In 2 Peter 1, 1, Jesus Christ is called God. The Holy Spirit is called God in a numerous places. Acts 5, 3, 4, uh, 5, 3, 4. You have places like 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, just to name a few. But yet the Bible says there's one God, right? Now, what does it mean one God or God is one? That's what we want to look at. Now, a few other things I'd like to point out, too, is in regards to salvation. The Bible teaches that it's for God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we know that God loves the world, 
and he wants people to be saved, right? Well, in John 6, 44, a popular verse used a lot of times by Calvinists, but that's not where I'm coming from. But Jesus says, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you, right? So the Father's desire is for people to be saved. Well, also in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself, right? I will draw all men. So Jesus came to give his life also as well. Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in John 16, verses 8 through 11, talking about when the Holy Spirit would come, he would convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. So the ministry of both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three are involved in the process of our salvation. What about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who raised Jesus from the dead? You talk to a Jehovah's Witness. You talk to other people out there who reject the deity of Christ, who affirm the Bible. Well, you ask the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 4, that it was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Hmm. It also says in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said, tear down this temple, and in three days, I, Jesus, meaning him, would raise himself from the dead. That's what Jesus claimed. The Bible also says in Romans 1, 5 and Romans 8, 11, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Yet, Acts 2.32 states that God raised him from the dead. So there are a plethora of scriptures when combined looking at creation, salvation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and others that show this tri-unity working together. Now, what I would like to point out here is also who is Jesus Christ? Predominantly, when we're going to be talking tonight, Stacy. We're going to be looking at probably a lot about who is Jesus Christ and what does the Gospels teach about who he is, what he claimed. And really, essentially, when it comes down to it, for a oneness person out there, and there's different types of oneness perspectives out there, whether modalist, UPCI, Jesus only, there's different variations of apostolic, oneness Pentecostals, whatever else. And Stacy tonight's a little bit different than the other guys out there. But in general, oneness have a very similar view. And here's one thing for sure they all have in common. Jesus did not pre-exist before he took on flesh. Well, yet the Bible says in a number of places, Jesus affirmed this. In fact, he said the Father sent him from the heavenly realm. John chapter 6, he came into this world. The Father sent him. In fact, if you were to go through the Gospel of John just alone, there are over 40 references where it says Jesus was sent by the Father to come into the world. 40 references, that's a lot. And also we see many times upon many times where Jesus says, I'm going to go back to the Father, Proston Patera. He's going back to be in the very presence with the Father, right? In fact, in John 17, 5, Jesus said, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was, before even creation. Jesus even himself acknowledged that he existed with the Father. Prior to creation, prior to his incarnation, Jesus existed. In fact, this is what Paul emphasizes also in the book of Philippians, where he says, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, took on the likeness of man, became obedient even to the point of death. Yes, death 
on a cross. So Jesus, who was by nature God, with the Father before the world was, before creation, before taking on and becoming a man, Jesus was with the Father in the beginning. He humbled himself, became like one of us. And then it says in verses 9 through 11 that the Father, highly God highly exalted him, meaning he raised him from the dead, gave him the name which above every other name, that at the knee, the knee of Jesus, every knee will bow, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? God the Father. Well, that's a direct reference back to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23, which is talking about Yahweh. So this, again, points to Jesus Christ. In fact, when you read John chapter 12, verse 41, in the previous verse, it talks about that they saw, Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, pointing back to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord and his glory, and John the Apostle says this was actually speaking of Jesus, again, before his incarnation, before him taking on flesh. That's important to grasp. So think about this. Even in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, a scripture that I've used many times. Let me just turn there real quick. 1 John chapter 4. Let me just read this here real quick. 1 John chapter 4. This is a new Bible. Uh, believe me, I got a new Bible, and here we go. I got one the other day in the bookstore. It's a nice deal. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 14. Read New American Standard. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life through him or live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. That's an interesting question. God was seen many times in the Old Testament by the angel of the Lord, Many times where it says actually with Abraham, with Hagar, with Moses, with Gideon. In fact, if you look at Zechariah chapter 1, 2, and 3, the angel of the Lord is actually called Yahweh praying to the Lord of hosts in heaven. You've got two in Zechariah 1, 2, and 3 who are identified as both being called Yahweh. How is that possible? And many people saw the Lord in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus said in John 6, 46, no one has seen the Father at any time. Well, John says here, no one has seen God. Well, then who did they see? They saw the pre-incarnate Jesus because he actually was in existence before he took on flesh. Goes on to say, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, that's interesting. So the Father sent the Son, talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 4, that goes directly with this, in verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, what's interesting is if you compare Galatians 4, 4 through 6, 1 John 4, verses 9 through 14, both of them talk about Jesus being in existence prior to taking on flesh. Jesus was born of a woman. He took on our likeness, Philippians chapter 2, as Paul emphasizes as well. 
also speaks of this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By him all things came into existence, and apart from that one thing came to existence. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So that's Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is one minute back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 48. What a beautiful text that harmonizes all what I just shared with you. Now, some people will argue the context here and the speaker is actually the prophet Isaiah. That is so untrue and unbiblical. It's not accurate. Listen to the key words here. Isaiah 48 verse 12. Listen to who's speaking here. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I call. I am he or I am. I am the first. I am also the last. Does that sound familiar? The book of Revelation, say 117, Revelation 2, 8, Revelation 22, 12 and 13, Revelation 22, 20 and 21, all being about Jesus. He's the first. He's the last. He's the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. That's the same one speaking right here. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I'm also last. Surely my hand founded the earth. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. John 1, 3. Hebrews 1, 2. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. Revelation 3, 14. All point to Jesus Christ being a part involved with creation. Am I out of time? Yeah, you've got a few seconds left. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll wrap up here. Wrap up sorry, I didn't thoughts. know that. Yeah, I didn't hear the time. I'll finish up with this. The one who's speaking here. I'll wrap it up to verse 16. Keeps on going. Come near to me and listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. That's not the prophet. Now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This goes prophetically together with Galatians 4, 1 John 4, and many other passages that I was talking about before. Sorry I didn't hear your time. Thank you. Oh, no worries. No worries. I appreciate that uh, opening statement. Kelly, we like to be easy going on, on the uh, opening statement. So Stacy, Kelly, if you, you know, if you guys go a few seconds if over Stacey that. If you want to go an extra two seconds, he can. <laughs> Very generous of you, Kelly. I appreciate that. <laughs> Stacy, we're going to hand it over to you. And actually, before I do, to the audience, we've got a great chat already. Please, for the audience Q&A, if you're, uh, if, if you're asking questions, just make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. That way I don't miss them. Okay, Stacy, uh, go ahead and I can start the timer on your first word. Okay. So is God one person or three? I'm going to go over the two definitions of person. A person in today's time would be a human being. It would be a person that you can see, um, interact with, and if, if you look at is God a person in today's um, teaching of the definition, I would say he's one person because the only person we've seen God as was Jesus when he walked on the earth. Now, if you take the definition of person from the third and fourth century, then that's, you know, something with attributes. Um, and if you look at it in that way, then that one person, again, is he's still one, not three. But that one person is going to be what's called God the Father in Scripture. Now, God the Father um, is a term that the Israelites gave their God. 
when you look at how they wrote the scriptures, um, you get an idea of what they mean when they say certain things. And you have to take this terminology all throughout scripture. And you start at Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning was God, and the Spirit of God hovered the waters. So when the Israelites talk about spirit, it's talking about God in action. God being the Father is who they mean when they say God, um, is a spirit. And that's how they describe him. They also say he's never been seen. He's an omnipresent spirit. Scripture says he's everywhere. 1 Kings 8, Psalms 139. This omnipresent spirit is everywhere. He's also the only spirit. Ephesians 4 says the one spirit, the Father, the all in all. Above all, in all, and through all. So this God to Israel is a spirit. He, he has uh, never been seen. He's everywhere. He's, he's only one. And they have a um, basically a, a law they go by, and it said, The Lord thy God, the Lord is one. So the burden of proof is on the Trinitarian. Uh, scripture clearly says that God is one. And that one, Israel calls one spirit, the one God. And God told Isaiah, as Isaiah pinned down, that he is the only God. He's by himself. He's alone. Um, Isaiah 44, 24. He doesn't share his glory. He alone, he has, he alone has his glory. He doesn't share it. 42, 8. And that, that God who's never been seen, um, He's a spirit. He's never been seen. The immortal has never been seen, according to Scripture. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.18, the God's never been seen. John 1.18, 1 Timothy 6.16, nor ever will be see, seen, it says. Uh, 1 John 4.12. And so that God is the, the spirit that hovered the waters, the spirit that creates. The spirit is God doing in Scripture. But that's why I use the word spirit. It's just a way of explaining what God the Father's doing. And they call him Father. Um, Isaiah um, 64, 8 said, The Lord, you're our Father. Um, Malachi 2.10 says, We only have one Father. And that's what it's talking about, this God. He's by himself. He's alone. They don't know anything else but this one God. And Moses, who's pinning all this down, lived and grew up amongst the Egyptians who had multiple gods that they worshipped. So if God was a trinity in the Christian God, Moses would have explained it because he had trinities all around him. The Egyptians worshipped the trinity for a thousand years before Moses was born. So he would have explained it, but he didn't. He said he's one. And this is how Israel looked at it. That's why they called him Father. Father's a term for one. He's the head. And so that's what Israel's talking about. Anytime it says God or Spirit. In Scripture, it'll, when it talks about God's Spirit working, he'll say, My Spirit. My Spirit will be on you and your offspring. My Spirit is amongst you. Um, Isaiah 45, 5. Um, the new covenant promise is his spirit amongst us, in us. Isaiah 59. Um, 
it's it's in the singular because he's by himself. Over seven thousand times, God is used in Scripture in the singular form, as pro, in the pronouns, because he's by himself. Um, and he's the one doing everything in Scripture. Scripture says God created everything by himself, and that's um, the one they call Father. Now, there's a promise in the Old Testament, and it says that this God, the Lord, as Deuteronomy 4 says, they called him Lord because he's over them. That's what that term means. He is going to come and be their Savior. How is he going to do it? He tells them. He says, I'm going to send a servant, and my spirit will be on him. That is the promise. He will open the blind eyes. They will all see my glory. Remember, he doesn't share his glory. So this one he's coming in, that's him. That's his glory. He's going to be amongst the people. And so that's what scripture is talking about when it talks about this man coming that we know of as Jesus. Um, Isaiah 43, 11, he says, you know, the one that's coming, that servant, I am he. Um, Isaiah 43 through 5, it says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make a highway for our God. They were crystal clear on what they were saying. And they're pinning down what God is telling them, that he's going to be their Savior. He alone is Savior, it says in Isaiah. There's no other Savior. So this God is going to be their Savior. So once you get to the book of Luke, the Gospels, in the New Testament, you have them see, seeing this come to pass. So when Elizabeth meets Mary after they're pregnant, she says, I'm blessed amongst women um, to be amongst the one that will have my Lord. To an Israelite, they're talking about their God, the promise in the Old Testament. They don't know of anything else. So that's what Elizabeth is talking about. They know all the promises of the Old Testament, that the Lord is going to come. Um, that's why the wise men came looking for the babe. I mean, they know about this promise. Um, they're looking, the disciples were looking for Jesus because they knew when he was going to arrive, according to the prophecy in Daniel. They're looking for that Messiah. They're looking for this Savior that's coming, and they know who it is. It's going to be the Lord that comes. So when we talk about Jesus, um, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus came to reveal the Father, John 1.18. He didn't come to reveal some God the Son um, invented over time um, by polytheistic nations, the Greeks and Romans that got together over time invented this trinity. That's not what it's talking about. They're, Jesus revealed is revealing the Father because the Father is invisible. He'll never be seen, 1 Timothy 6.16. When we get to heaven, we'll see his face singular. We're going to see Jesus because the Spirit of God is in Jesus. That one throne, Revelations 22, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to fellowship with God through, through Christ. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to be like him, and that's how we fellowship with God is through Jesus because God's never been seen. He's a spirit. Scripture's clear on that. We, we, we will worship through Christ. That glory will be on Jesus, as Philippians 2 says. 
Um, and we will, it will be to the glory of the Father, Philippians 2.11. Jesus is here to reveal the Father when he came in the last days. And if you look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it, it, he clearly tells you, the Father spoke to the prophets in many ways in the past, but in these last days spoke in the Son. So it's the Father who's always speaking, the God of the Scriptures. Jesus is, he's the Word of God. He's the one fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures through this New Testament. He's, he's making all the promises come true because he is the promise that the Father's coming through a man. Um, that's what it. That's what they're talking about in Scripture. And so here's Jesus. He's the Christ. That's why it's called Christ. He's not ever called a God the Son. He's called the Christ because he's the one who has the Father in him. He's the anointed. It was the Father's good pleasure to fill the Son, to put himself in the Son, Colossians 1.19. So he's the image, Colossians 1.15. He's the form of the Father. Paul, in his writings, in his first chapter of almost every letter he writes, he'll say, God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ, or he'll say, of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God the Father is the Father of that body. He's the one reigning in this Christ, this Jesus man who the apostles saw, lived with, and, that's, and they called him um, their Savior and their Lord. These are Israelites. They know who the Savior and Lord is. He's the Father of the Old Testament. So they have no, no qualms calling him, you know, their Lord because they know all the prophecies. This God is going to come. And Israelite only knows that. They don't know anything about a trinity. So according to Israelite, they see one person. That person, God the Father, is going to be through this uh, man. And that's how we fellowship. That's how he was the savior of us. And so Jesus, being that image, and as Paul says in all his writings, he'll say, God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get to Philippians 2, he says, being in the form of God. Well, go to Paul's writings. Paul's writings were clear to him, God is the Father. So what he's saying is Jesus being in the form of the Father. Because we can't see God. He's invisible. So Jesus was the form. That's what he's saying. So anytime you talk, you hear, you see G Jesus in Scripture, he is speaking the Father's words. He is revealing the Father. He's the Savior. He's the Lord that's, that has come um, to fulfill the Scriptures. The Scriptures is about God the Father because he is our creator he is our Savior. It's all about Him. He created us to worship Him. Jesus said in John 4, uh, 23 through 24, He said, in that day you'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. He didn't say anything about a trinity. He said the Father. That's one person. Because God the Father is the only God of Scripture. He is the Lord. He is the God. The reason Jesus is called Lord is because Jesus is over us as Lord, because God is in Him. He lets Jesus be the God of Scripture. Like um, if you look at Hebrews 1.8, he says he, you know, he he calls him God when he reigned on his throne. Uh, when he goes to his throne, it says um, he's he's allows that because he is the God that's reigning um, for us. Um, that's why it says verse 9 says he's anointed. 
He's not a God, the son that's always been here. He's anointed God because the father's going to reign through him. Um, always remember God is invisible. It's how he shows himself is through this man. This is very clear in scripture. It's the whole point of scripture, all the prophecies. Um, this, this son that is to come will be called everlasting father, mighty God. Um, the apostles knew this. They were looking for him. They were waiting for that Messiah. As Elizabeth said, my Lord, you have my Lord um, in your womb. I mean, Scripture is crystal clear. There's no mention of a God the Son in the entire Bible. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is just a Father in action. That's why it says His Holy Spirit or my Holy Spirit. Or my spirit. Those are the terms used in scripture about the spirit. It's always the father. <clears throat> it's his spirit doing everything. Um, I will put my spirit upon you. That's the new covenant promise. One minute. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's um, it's always the father. He's the God of scripture. He's the one person. But he is a spirit and he is omnipresent. And the way he deals with us is he gives us his spirit. So we can gain understanding. But his spirit also was in the man, Jesus. And came as that man. That's how he fellowshiped and showed himself. As, as John says, Jesus reveals the Father. He doesn't reveal a second person of the Trinity, a God the Son. Jesus was called Son of God because he was born of God. He was born of the Spirit. The spirit came down from heaven um, and indwelt a, a human. Um, and that's why he was called son of God. He was never called God the son. The Holy Spirit's not a separate person. You got once one person in scripture called God the father. I'll give my time. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, Stacy, that concludes the 15 minute opening statements. Thank you to Kelly and uh, Stacy. We're now moving into the 10 minute uninterrupted rebuttal portion of the debate. We're going to hand it over to uh, Kelly. Kelly, whenever you're ready, you've got 10 minutes for your rebuttal. All right. 10 minutes. Man. All right. I have to first say this, Stacy. Towards the end there, you said, and I quote, Hebrews 1.8, he is anointed God. He is an anointed God. End quote. You said in Hebrews 1.8, in reference to Jesus, he is called an anointed God. Now, if anyone out there caught that, now, Stacy, I don't think you meant to say that intentionally. If you did, that is a huge blunder huge because you open up saying there's only one god but yet if jesus is an anointed god but he's not necessarily the father then you've got two gods and if you don't accept the trinity you still got two gods either way you look at it you got two gods because if jesus is an anointed god but you still got god the father who you say is the one spirit well then you still got Two gods. Ho! Unpack that one when we get to cross-examination. Let me tell you. All right. You said um, God is spirit. I would agree with that. John 6, 4, 424. God is spirit. Those are worship, worship him in spirit and truth. Absolutely. 
I would like to know where you say in the Old Testament says that um, God is called one spirit. I would like to know where that is stated directly. Where is God called one spirit? I like to know that because you, as a you know friendly saying this, you say where does it say God the Son? You know, and I never use that phraseology. Um, you know, it's not something I generally use. Uh, but Hebrews 1, 8 through 10 and 8 through 12. Um, oh, my gosh. You just opened up the whole series. Bad promise for you, my friend. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, you referenced John 1, 18, 1 John 4, 12, which I already talked about. Jesus said in John 6, 46, no one has seen the Father. But yet in let me just give you a few examples. Just a few. Just to name a few. Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. Hagar saw God and even said her life was preserved because she saw God and lived. Genesis 18, it says the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abraham. He saw the Lord. Genesis 19, 24, the people saw Yahweh on earth rain fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11, talking about Moses and with the 70, it says that they actually saw God under his feet, and they ate and drank with God right there. Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. Gideon says he saw God and lived, the angel of the Lord, in Judges 6, 13. 6, 22, sorry. And 5, 13 in their reference. But anyway, the point is, people did see God in the Old Testament. But Jesus said, no one has ever seen the Father. So that excludes Jesus being the Father. Any of you want these people out there? And John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. That's talking about Jesus. He came to reveal the Father. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, Jesus is not literally the Father. That may come as a surprise to oneness people, but he's not the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Verses 16 through 17, that I testify myself and the Father testifies of me. And we have two witnesses of two. Two witnesses. Jesus and the Father are distinct. So Jesus cannot be the Father. That excludes him. You also reference again Deuteronomy 6.4. Here is it, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Again, Echad. You can go to Genesis 1.5. Genesis 2.24. You can go to places like Ezekiel 37.17. You can go to places like Ezra 2.64. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 64, and other places where the same Hebrew word one is used collectively as a, a whole or assembly, a composite unity. So it is never exclusively always as being one. That's where Dustin Smith failed when I had a debate with him a lot. I challenged him to say, give me one scripture, just one, where it says unequivocally God is one person. And he couldn't do it. And he tried so desperately, but he couldn't do it. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. Let me go on here. Now you reference a couple places. Isaiah 64, 8. I actually reference that, so I don't really need to give a lot of that. It's talking about the Father being called Yahweh, our Lord, and he's the maker. We are the clay. He's the potter. I don't have disagreement. But when you reference Malachi 2.10, the context of Malachi 2.10, he's actually talking about their forefathers. The context and the lineage is talking about we have our forefathers, but we have one father. God. So he's talking about in general that we only have one father, which this is emphasized in the New Testament, particularly 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We have one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. One God, the Father, through whom are all things made, and one Lord Jesus Christ, 
of whom are all things made. It actually shows them together. We only have one father. Jesus is not the father. We have one God the father. That's unequivocally not challenged. You talked about Isaiah 42, verse 8, that God will not share his glory with anyone else. You're right. He won't share his glory with a man that he created. That's oneness heresy, my friend, and anyone listening. Jesus is by nature God, Philippians chapter 2, 5, and 6, right? Jesus said, before Abram was born, I am, John 8, 58 through 59. The context, Jesus claimed to be the eternal I am from Exodus chapter 3. Jesus said, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Jesus claims his pre-existence before taking on flesh, and he had the glory he had with the Father. So, of course, Jesus is not a part of creation. He existed prior to taking on flesh. That's excluded. And also, if you were to look at Colossians 1.50, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation or over all creation. Well, he's not just a mere copy. He is the image, meaning the exact copy. Hebrews 1.3, he is the very radiance of God. Who is correct are. He's the express image, the exact representation of God come in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 says he is deity in the flesh. So therefore, Jesus is by nature God. He's one with the Father. He says, I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. So yeah, he won't share his glory with creation like that. Therefore, Jesus has the glory with the Father. Therefore, that proves Jesus is not only God, but he is also with the Father before creation. Now, what's interesting, Stacy, I'll give you a little bit of juice here. You know, I found out recently, and I didn't count them, but according to Dustin Smith, there's over 20,000 apparently now singular pronouns in reference to God in the Old Testament. And I don't want to know who counted those because that's a serious lot amount of work. Here's the problem with that, trying to use it as your defense or your proof or whatever else. How many references, how many references in the New Testament do we need that affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is one good enough? Is two good enough? Is three good enough? Is four good enough? Do we need 7,000 references? Do we need 20,000? No, the point is you balance it out. So therefore, even though God has been referenced in those times in the singular, there are also countless hundreds of references that point to this triunity or this unity of God. Again, for example, I pointed to Genesis 1.26. Well, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen, right? No doubt about that. Then it says, God said, let us make man in our image. And God made man in his own image, both male and female. He made them. So God made man, not angels, not cows or dogs, but God made man in his own image, but he also spoke in the plural. No doubt about that. Again, Genesis 19, 24, this is a, a nightmare for oneness people. You can't get around it. Yahweh rained fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. You've got at least two who are identified being called Yahweh there. And you cross-reference that with uh, Jeremiah 50, verse 40. You cross-reference that with Amos chapter 4, verse 10 or 11. And you cross-reference that with Isaiah chapter 13, verse uh, 17 through 19. Plenty of witnesses right there that back that up. There's at least two in context. Now, I want to go back to also what I was saying again a minute ago. Well, let's see if we can make sure. There's, you've got so much stuff to re reference here. And I'll finish One with minute. this. One minute. Thank you, sir. Let's go back to the Hebrews Whopper. The Hebrews Whopper. This is a serious Burger King Whopper right here. Let me tell you. So Hebrews chapter one, God, after he spoke long ago to his fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in the son, 
in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. He is the exact radius, the exact radiance. Therefore, he's not just a copy. He has the very glory of the Father. But let's go, let's, let's fast forward to verse 8. Your uh, anointed God reference. He, Jesus is a, 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 an anointed God. The Bible says there's one God. We're not to have two gods, three gods, four gods. That's idolatry. So by you, you just said a minute ago, Stacey, and any oneness person who would affirm this, you either have to approve and accept the triunity of God, or you're now considered a polytheist. Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. Thank you. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Thank you so much for that 10-minute rebuttal, Kelly. Now we'll hand it over to Stacy. You also have 10 minutes for your rebuttal. I'll start the timer on your first word. All right, I'm going to go over what Kelly just said. First off, Hebrews 1. Let me explain Hebrews 1 to Kelly. <laughs> okay, God, who is the Father, spoke in many ways in the Old Testament and in these last days spoke in the Son. It's the Father speaking. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Who did he appointing? The Father. So he's appointing this man. Through whom he made the, it's not the world. In Greek, that word there is ages. So God made the ages, the covenants through Jesus. How did he do that? From the promise in Genesis. The entire Bible is about this covenant. He told Eve, I'm going to take your seed and crush his head, talking to the serpent. That's the covenant promise. Then they start um, sacrificing animals um, because that was... Um, that was basically foretelling a future sacrifice that um, God is going to provide for the people and pay for their sin debt. That's the old covenant. The promise also in this Old Testament is the new covenant that is going to be through this servant um, that is going to usher in God's spirit on us. These are the ages talked about in Hebrews. That's what it's talking about. It's through the one he anoint, who he appoints. That's Jesus. He is the exact uh, radiance of his glory. Exactly. Jesus is the basically the express person of the Father. Because, you again, you can't see the Father. He's the God. And I'll go over that in just a second about something Kelly said. Um, so God has never been seen. So yeah, he, Jesus is the express um, representation of the Father. That's the whole point of Jesus. He's revealing the Father. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, when he purified sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Right hand is a, is a term of favor in scripture. Of course, Jesus isn't sitting beside the Father because the Father's the invisible spirit who's in Jesus. It's a term of uh, power and favor. David was at the right hand of God. I mean, the right hand term is everywhere in Scripture. So keep on going. Um, for the witch of the angels did he say, you are my son. Today I fathered you. So here he is. He's begotten. This is a prophecy. Um, then he says, um, I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. Again, prophecy of Jesus being born. Not some eternal God the Son. This is all about a man that's coming. Go back to remember verse 1 and 2. He's speaking in the Son. This is the Father speaking. Jesus came. He spoke the Father's words. 
So as you keep going, it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, what's he talking about? He's talking about the firstborn of the new covenant age, the spirit. Um, Jesus was the first one born in the spirit. Keep on reading. He says he, um, he makes his angels wings and his ministers a flame of fire. But regarding his son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. A sepulcher of righteousness is a sepulcher of his kingdom. He's talking about the new covenant kingdom. When did Jesus um, begin reigning? When he ascended to heaven and sat on the throne. That's Daniel 7. That's when his forever reign began. Again, this is the Father reigning in this man. That's the whole point. Because remember, the Father has never been seen. So here he is. He, now Jesus is reigning for us uh, on the throne, on the Father's throne, remember, in Revelations. And it says, um, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. That's a term from Psalms 110. And it's talking about God the Father anointing this man. And he anoints him, what? He's, he's the God of us now. Why? Because the Father's not seen. He's showing he's this God that came and saved, but was the Savior for the people that he created. That's the whole point of the prophecies in the Old Testament. The Father's coming in this man. That's what it's talking about. Remember, Isaiah said there's only, there's only one Savior. There's only one God, one Lord, one creator. That's who this is. But he's, he's showing himself to us through a man um, so that he can fellowship with us and be amongst us. Yeah. That's what Scripture's saying. <clears throat> and talking about, Kelly said, uh, well, God, yeah, he admitted he's never been seen, but then he goes right to the Old Testament and says, look, he was seen everywhere. That's called theophanies. That's God in something so that he can show, so that he can get his word across. He did that in the Old Testament through angels and through prophets. Here in the New Testament, he's doing it through Jesus. If Jesus is a God, the Son, how's, how are we seeing him? <clears throat> God the Father is the one God that's invisible, but he's showing himself through a man. Well, here's Jesus. It's the Father in him, as Scripture says, but Kelly's saying, you know, God's showing himself. Well, here's Jesus. God is, if he's God, why is he being seen by all these people? It's the same way. It's God the Father through all these avenues to show himself. That's what scripture's saying. You can't claim that Jesus is a God the Son, but yet he's being seen. If God is invisible, why is Jesus even seen? Um, that's a bad argument. And then talking about um, being in a singular form. Yeah, it's always in a singular form. If God was a plural, you could never use it in a singular. That's the point. You can't have 7,000 against four and claim that God is multiple persons. It wouldn't go. You would never, you would never um, say multiple people as an I or a me or a he. Um, that's just not how it works. Um, it would always be in the plural. It could never be in the singular. So that destroys that argument. Um, so seeing God, let's see. <clears throat> one spirit, that was Ephesians 4. There's only one spirit, and it's the Father. That's the only spirit talked about in Scripture. That's why he says my spirit or his Holy Spirit. It's his spirit. He is the spirit. He's the only spirit. That's the whole point. He's the invisible yeah. spirit. So... Um, um, that's the one spirit, it's the Father, 
Um, the I am he talked about, the I am in Exodus 3 is the Father. The angel of the Lord, that's the Father speaking, just like Hebrews 1 said. It's the Father speaking to Moses through this angel. Um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel knew that was the Father God of the Old Testament. This isn't Jesus, the God, the Son, speaking in, in the burning bush. That's not what it means. And when it talks about Jesus before Abraham, it's talking about the promise of Jesus. Abraham saw him was glad. He saw him through the um, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, and God provided the lamb. That's how he saw the Savior in the future. The word was a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path, the promise of the Savior. But he wasn't there already. He was the promise. And this was all by faith. That's what it's always talking about when it talks about Jesus. Um, but the God of Scripture is the Father, nothing else, anywhere. Um, let's see. So that's pretty much all his points. It's always the Father in Jesus. He's not an extra God, the Son, or, I mean, it's just no, it's so, it's just easy to explain. It's the Father who is invisible. He is the Spirit of the world. That's why Jesus said, worship, worship the Father. Jesus is our teacher. He never said worship a trinity. He never even brought up a God the Son. There's no God the Son that entered into Jesus. If there's a God the Son, the scripture would have said he entered Jesus. It's nowhere. It's the Father who hovered Mary and put his spirit into. Oh, let me just stop you right man. there. Um, Stacey, I'm just going to stop your timer right there for one second. Um, Kelly, are you? Is the audio crashed for you? Has the audio crashed? No, I'm, I'm good now. Okay. Close okay. door. Okay. My wife was messing with the audio, messed it up, so I didn't hear the last couple of minutes. But uh, I'm sure whatever Stacy said, it was great. <laughs> he still got, <laughs> he still got a minute and fifteen seconds. I, I, I saw you look like you're having. Um, my wife was using the earbuds and stole my volume, and so uh, <laughs> Stacy gave you a time for a breather. So proceed. Thank you for seeing that I had issues. Thank you. No, no, no problem. I appreciate that, uh, Kelly. So now that we figured that out, let me uh, just get your timer going uh, again. Stacy, you've got exactly a minute and 13 seconds. So go ahead whenever you're ready. All right. Um, I'm going to bring up another point. Um, Psalms 136, if you read two through four, it says, um, give thanks to the God of gods um, for his faithfulness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his faithfulness is everlasting. To him alone who does great wonders. Notice it says him. He's the God of God and Lord of lords. So it's used in the singular. He's alone, it says. Well, that same phrase is used in Revelations. Listen to what it says. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Revelations is revealing who Jesus was clearly from the Psalms. Um, it mentions nothing about anybody else being with the Father. It says he's by himself. So that term, when it applies to Jesus, is crystal clear. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16 which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen. 
to him be honor and eternal dominion. It's talking about the Father. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In ten seconds, according to, according to Paul, in Revelations, John exposes and, and lets you know it's Jesus, um, their Savior. It's the Father coming. That's the whole point of Scripture. All right. Well, that concludes the opening statements and rebuttals. We are now moving into the open discussion portion of the debate. Now, the open discussion for this debate is structured in a way that gives uh, Kelly, uh, since Stacy just ended with his rebuttal, we're going to have Kelly uh, kind of lead the way for 20 minutes uh, asking questions. And then we will hand it to Stacy, who can lead the way in discussion for 20 minutes as well. This is where I will um, be engaging the audience, saving your questions, especially for the audience Q&A. So that being said, uh, Stacy, Kelly, the floor is yours. All right. So, hey, thanks, Stacy. Appreciate the uh, conversation. Now, just for the record, normally when we're doing a, a, a response, um, you're supposed to be responding to what was presented. Um, a lot of things that I shared you didn't actually get to yet, but uh, I'll forgive you for that. So let's start off with this. In Jude chapter 1, can you turn there for a second for me? Jude chapter 1, Stacey? Yeah. While you're turning, let me ask you a question. When you're reading through the different epistles, you would acknowledge normally the Father is called God the Father, and it's always Lord Jesus Christ, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Is there any example where you can think of where the Father is called Lord in any of um, Paul's epistles, Peter, John, James, or Jude, where anytime the Father's ever called Lord like that? Curios? Curios? <clears throat> um, I think he is probably in. I can't think of an example right a second. Okay. To my knowledge, I may be wrong, but I don't know of the one. So that's why I'm asking you that. Okay. And there's a reason why I'm asking that. In Jude chapter one, verse three, a familiar verse that we know. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith once delivered, handed down to the saints. Now, verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So would you see the distinction there between the God being there, being most likely the Father, and then here, our only master and Lord being referenced to Jesus Christ. Right. How about verse five? Because to my knowledge, anytime I ever see any place with Paul, Jude, anyone else, when referenced to Lord, I don't know of one place where it's ever referenced to the Father. The reason why I say that is look at verse five. Because in verse four, Jude called Jesus Lord. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Can you give me any reason why that would not be a reference to Jesus Christ right there in its proper context and through the context of all the epistles from the apostles and the writings? Um, it could be. It could definitely be Jesus. So how could that be Jesus 
but if he didn't pre-exist before taking on flesh to you. Well, there again, if some, all the Old Testament is about the promise of Jesus, and these Israelites are living by faith, <clears throat> by faith. So um, they know about the Messiah that's coming. But there again, when Scripture says God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, remember the Shema, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Right. I just want to stay with God, this context, though, Stacey. Hold on, hold on again. In 1.5 here, it says Bible, that the Lord passage. saved the people of Egypt. Who is the Lord here in the context? Wait a minute. First off, the Lord and God is the same person. So the then, therefore, God Jesus Christ is, always, is God, according to verse 4 and 5. The Lord and God is interchangeable in the Old Testament. So okay. it's always the Father. So you just proved the Trinity right there, Stacy. <laughs> no, because the Father is the Spirit. So we'll take that out of the way. Jesus is a man. Who's the God in Jesus? Okay, but back to verse 5, yeah. Stacy. Let's go over the this. So on, I get to ask Christ. the question, right? Remember, this is my time for you. So Jude 1.5 says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. So this Lord saved the people out of Egypt, which is Old Testament reference. So how could this be Jesus if he didn't pre-exist before he took on flesh? Um, well, it's definitely not because God did not speak in the sun, nor the sun was even here. He wasn't begotten yet. But what does the text um, say, Stacy? Yeah, it says, um, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. There again, the Lord, who's the Lord in Jesus? It's the Father. That's the point. The Father's the Lord in Jesus. Jesus is a man. A little while ago, Stacey, though, you acknowledge to me that when it's talking about Lord in the New Testament, it's always in reference to Jesus, and God the Father's reference to the Father in this proper context Jesus is called Lord, and it says the Lord saved the people out of Egypt. This would be in reference to Jesus saving the people out from the land of Egypt before he took on flesh. That's the context. Uh, there again, the Lord that is associated with the name Jesus Christ is the Father in Jesus called the Christ. Why is he a Christ? Because the Father's in him. Jesus is a man. That's the Father's name, Jesus Okay. Yahweh you know that's not answering this text, though. You know that, right, Stacey? But you can't just take one text and just make oh, it. There's believe. many more coming. Don't you worry. I'm it just trying to, to go, go It has to go with the rest of what Scripture's saying. Okay. Look up. Just go up to the first of Jude. It says God and Father. It doesn't yeah. include Jesus in it. That's why I believe this points to the Trinity, because if you don't, then you've got polytheism. Let me go on to a different question, Stacey. So if you don't mind, in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And I love you, man. I really do. And I want to see you come to the truth, man. I'm going to press you a little bit harder than I did last time. But in hard love. John chapter 12. Let me just read a few verses here. I'm going to start in verse 30. Let's start in verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, whom has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they would not see and their ears and perceive with their hearts and convert and heal them. And I heal them. So now notice what happens here in verse 41, Stacy. And here's my question. 
these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is John talking about here in verse 41 that Isaiah saw in the context? Um, you're talking about Jesus. Well, what do you think? Well, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but yeah, I mean, the arm of the Lord, that's Jesus. That's true. You're right. Yeah, I mean, so what's your point? Yes, yeah, Jesus. That's uh, Isaiah. It's all prophesying Jesus. So let me let me help you out a little bit what I'm trying to communicate. Maybe I didn't communicate it good enough. I apologize if I didn't, okay? So the verses before this is actually speaking about Jesus Christ being the one revealed, being the light, being the sun, and they're rejecting him. And then John writes, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, which he spoke, saying, Lord, who has believed our report? There's a twofold here, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he blinded their hearts, hardened their hearts, so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. Actually, another reference as well. The point, though, is, Verse 41, John, the apostle, says when they were speaking, Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. Now, in Isaiah 6, let me just turn you there for a second here. Turn to Isaiah 6, and you see what I'm saying. Isaiah 6 is a directly reference to what John is talking about here about Jesus. Isaiah 6. Let's start in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a reference directly from what John says about Jesus, that Isaiah saw Jesus right there. He saw the Lord of hosts. And this is a vision. <laughs> is that what you see here? Does that look like a vision? Yeah, these are all visions. He's not in heaven. This is a vision God gave him, just like the Revelations is a vision. So why would he be so scared that he's a man of unclean lips? He's going to get judgment here. Well, he's seeing uh, God's message. Um, he sees how undone he is. He's a sinful human. Let me keep reading here. It says, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this is touched with your lips. Your iniquity is taken away from you. You think this is just a vision or this really happened? Yeah, I mean, this is, there again, you're talking about the angel there. Um, the angels were seen, but I mean, this, this is definitely a vision seeing the throne in heaven. Notice there's only one on the throne. He only sees one. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't say he only saw one just says he saw one. He saw one on the throne. Yeah. Uh -huh. Revelation three twenty one would, would yeah. refute that. But here's the uh, point. My point is, is it just another reference showing that Jesus Christ was in existence prior taking on flesh. Let me now change tunes for a second here with you. This is a question 
This is a question I like to ask you, and this is a question for anyone listening out there to ponder. I have never asked this reason of questions. This is the first time I'm taking a shot at it with you, Stacy. Here we go. Who do you believe Jesus taught the Holy Spirit is in John 14, 15, and 16? Who did Jesus teach the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is the Father's Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit proceeds from the Father, John 15, 26. Um, I don't know what else you want me to say. Have you ever thought about that before much, Stacy? really examining who the Holy Spirit is? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit, all throughout the Scriptures, tells you it's the Father's Spirit. Is that what Jesus taught? Well, well, he said he worshiped the Father in spirit. He recognizes the Father is the Spirit. He said the Spirit comes from the Father. He even said his Spirit came from the Father and is going back to the Father, the Spirit that's in him. He recognized that it's the Father in him. Remember, he said, you're looking at the Father. I've been with you. Mm-hmm. Philip asked, where's the Father? He didn't ask about anything else. He didn't say the Spirit so John, Jesus. In John 14, verse 16, let me read it to you if you want to turn there. In Go John ahead. chapter 14, verse 16, this is what Jesus said. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Have you ever examined the two words, another helper in the Greek? Do you know what the word another there in Greek is? I mean, no, not right off. Okay, fair enough. The Greek word is alos, A-L-L-O-S. Make a note of it, write it down, look it up later. It has the meaning another, but one who is distinct from, meaning another personage, but also has by the same nature and kind. So I'll paraphrase what I'm trying to say to you and ask you a question. Jesus is teaching that the Father will send another one who is like me, but not me, but who has the same nature and qualities that I have. Speaking about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's not Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but he is also by nature what Jesus is. And that's why he says he will be in you later. Let me ask you this question over here in John 16. Let me just read you a few verses here and ask you your thoughts. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, pay attention to you like pronouns, I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, meaning Jesus. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, who is also not Jesus. And you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged, 
I, meaning Jesus, have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But when he, the spirit of truth, talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, disclose to you, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Is there any way in the world you could think all those teachings that Jesus just gave that literally the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all just one personage? Yeah, because here is Jesus. He speaks the Father's words. So when he says, I will come to you, he says, I'm going to, um, my father will send a helper. And then he says, notice he says, I will come to you. So here's Jesus again. He's saying, I will come to you, even though he said, then, right before that, he said, the helper. <laughs> but then he says, I will come to you. He's speaking the father's words. Who's going to convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness? The Holy Spirit convicts. Who is that? The spirit of the father. What is the promised new covenant? So what does the Holy Spirit, according to, what, what does the Holy Spirit do, Stacey, according to verse 14 and 15? What is the Holy Spirit's ministry and role? What does Jesus teach? You mean where he convicts us? No, read verse 14 and 15, and you tell me, what does Jesus teach that the Holy Spirit will do? What is his ministry? Um. What were you at, chapter 14? Chapter 16, oh, verse 14 and 15. <clears throat> Glorify me, he will take from mine and will disclose it. All things the Father has of mine. And he's just saying that he's gonna he's gonna uh, he's gonna basically open your eyes to Christ. Who will? The Spirit of God. And who is he going to open your eyes to? Um, he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. <clears throat> I mean, he's just, he's revealing, you know, he's going to open your eyes to know who Christ is. What if we were reading this like normal, if we were reading this like normal literature, let's add. <clears throat> Let's 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 play a game for a second. We're going to say Don, Stacy, and Kelly, and we're going to say Don for a second is Jesus. We'll say you are the Father for a second, and I'm the Spirit. Let's just go back to verse thirteen. But when Kelly, the Spirit of Truth, comes, Kelly will guide you into all truth. Kelly will not speak of his own initiative. Whatever Kelly hears, Kelly will speak. Kelly will disclose to you what has come. Kelly will glorify. Dawn, and for Kelly will take of Dawn and disclose it to you. All things that Stacy has are Dawn's. Therefore, I said, Kelly takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's normal reading. Jesus is making it abundantly clear in these verses that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all distinct from one another, and they have different ministries. That's no, again, what's being stated here. 
again, okay, notice it says he doesn't speak on his own. This is the spirit of God. This uh -huh. is the arm of God. This is his extension of him in action. Where does it say Father, the spirit of God is the arm of God? The Father is the one speaking through the Holy Spirit. Here's spirit things to the texture. It no, look, he that. says he does not speak on his own. He yeah. discloses what is to come. He's just did, revealing. Did Jesus to us. speak on his own? The Holy Spirit reveals. Did Jesus speak on his own? He, as a human, yes. But he not, also not spoke, as uh, an anointed God. In spirit, he spoke the Father's words. Not as an anointed God, he didn't speak on his own. He spoke the Father's words. You see, okay. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude to you, Stacy, but you, you understand Kelly. the logical of that reading. How you just do that. His spirit, Kevin. You basically I mean, have to retwist this to make it fit your theology. It's, it's easy. You just dodge it. It's his spirit, singular. It's the Father's spirit in Jesus. Do you know that in this text, Stacy, 15 times Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit distinctly 15 times, himself, Jesus, 13 times, and the Father twice. Why is that important? He's letting them know the spirit is going to guide them. But it's the look at Matthew 10, 20. It's the father spirit that will be in them. It's the father spirit. <clears throat> that's who that's the only spirit there is. Okay. The father you can himself. get to that when you have your time for question and answer. So let me go to another spot here. So you would acknowledge the Holy Spirit's called God. Yes or no? Um. <clears throat> I mean, it is God. It's it is it. God? It is. It's, yeah, it's God. It's his Holy Spirit. It's it, him. The Holy Spirit is God. Interesting. <clears throat> well, so it's, in it's chapter it's five, a, How much time it, we got left, him. Don? Don how he much is holy and he's the Spirit. Good question. We have just under two minutes. Okay, I'll be real quick. All right, that makes me fast forward to a different spot. Okay, let me ask you this question. You believe the Holy Spirit, and a simple answer, Stacy. Who is the Holy Spirit specifically to you, according to the scriptures? It's God himself in action. It's his spirit. It's an okay. extension of himself. So it's an it, right? No, he's he said a earlier he. that the Holy Spirit is an it. So you, have, so you have no problem calling the Holy Spirit an it, right? No, it's a he, it's him. He is Holy Spirit. Okay, but is the Holy Spirit a he or an it? The Holy Spirit is a he. It's the Father. So the Holy Spirit's the Father. Right. Okay, that's interesting. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit is actually God, why wouldn't he just say, Don't grieve God? Because it's an action word. Spirit is an action word. That spirit is in them. That is in them, you know. So how could they grieve the Holy Spirit when you're living in, in sin, them, you're grieving he's already the Holy God. Spirit. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. It's just the way they use words. Why would it ever say the word spirit? Why does it why wouldn't it just say God everywhere? So to be all be nice to you, Stacy. Basically, when we read scripture, we can just read it a different way that fits what we want it to say rather than what it really says and learn from the exegesis of what's being stated rather than let's just eisegesis it and we can make it say what we want it to say. Time. Time. So we'll give uh, Kelly the final word there since he was leading the way. No, that's good. Now... That's good. That's good. 
Okay. I, I think I was, I made my point pretty clear, clear biblical reading. When you read these kind of things, especially the Holy Spirit, he's clearly taught by Jesus, John 14, 15, 16, and other places. He is not the father. He's not Jesus. He's a distinct person. I appreciate that. Fantastic discussion so far. We've got a ton of great feedback, a very lively audience tonight, and a ton of great questions coming in. So guys, continue uh, tagging me at Standing for Truth, and we're definitely going to have an awesome audience Q&A. So we're going to hand it to Stacy. Now I'm going to restart the clock. We've got another 20 minutes. We're going to allow you, Stacy, to lead the way in terms of discussion. The floor is yours, gentlemen. All right, Kelly. Um, who is um, the God in Jesus, according to Jesus? Can you give me a verse for that when you say that? You can find any verse. Who did Jesus say was the God in him? I don't know of any verse that says the God in him, so I don't know how to answer that. John 14. Verse what? Seven through ten. Okay. Who's... I'll read it. I'll read it. If you have known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And it's enough for us. Jesus said, have I now been with you? And yet you've not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abided in me, does his works. So just to correct you, one thing, you said the God in me. That's not how it's worded. It says the Father in me. So what's your question again? Yeah, who's the, who is the God in Jesus according to Scripture? <laughs> I just told you it doesn't say that. So you're, you're putting different words there in the text. It says the Father who is in him. Well, we know the Father is God, and the apostles are asking him, show us the Father. Uh-huh. And Jesus gave a response. He said, hey, have I not been with you so long? I mean, you look at the context here of John, what is going on here. In fact, in the same chapter, just a few verses later, he says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So Jesus, according to this text, previous chapters, chapters after it, talks about that he was sent from the Father. The Father was within him. He was one with the Father, but he's not the Father. Can you show me anywhere in Scripture where God the Son is in Jesus? Nope. Because that's not phraseology is not used in the New Testament nor anywhere in the Bible, and Jesus wouldn't be in himself. That's a that's a that's an oxymoron right there. Is Jesus ever called God the Son or Son of God? Called God the Son in numerous places, sure. Where is he called God the Son? You know there's no answer to that. There's nowhere called God the Son. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so in the old testament, who who um so God speaks and says the spirit is my spirit, using singular pronouns. Why wouldn't he say our spirit? Depends in the context. Give me a reference and I'll tell you why. Um, like, let's say um, Isaiah, when it says um, Isaiah 44, verse okay. 3. 
Isaiah 44, verse 3? Yeah. 44, verse 3. And can you ask me your question again? It says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Why didn't it say our spirit? It's a good question. Why didn't it say I'll pour out myself on your offspring either? That's an interesting observation. In fact, this is interesting because there are numerous places where other examples, just to give a simple answer, where it talks about um, not by might, not by men, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So a lot of times, even in the Old Testament, the spirit of God would be operating distinctly from Yahweh at times, the Lord, but it would still be one together. That's why that's why this is so important to understand the triunity of God. This is so foundational. As I talked about earlier that you didn't respond to, but just to be a quick highlight, I talked about creation, salvation, and just the resurrection. Just three examples, three examples, Old and New Testament, where all three are involved with creation, all three are involved with salvation, and all three are involved with his resurrection. Yet the Bible says God did it all. That's why it points to this triunity. The Holy Spirit works in many different ways, Old and New Testament. That's why I was talking again a minute ago about what did Jesus teach about the Holy Spirit? He taught many things. So this doesn't come against the Trinity. In fact, this would be reinforcing the triunity of God. So, um, so in John, um, John 20, where Jesus said, um, I guess he's talking to Mary and he says, I go to my father, my God and your God. If Jesus is a co-equal God person, why would he call the Father his God? It's a good question. Why would an anointed God call the Father his God? It's a good question. So in John 20 here, as we just let me read a few verses before it, just for context, just a few. He's speaking to the woman, Mary, in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. She wept, stooped, and looked in the womb, tomb, sorry. She saw the two angels in white, one on the head, uh, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus was lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, and because they have taken away my Lord, I do not know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir. If you've carried away him, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll go take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she returned and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Now, what's interesting here, there's a whole lot to unpack, but for the sake of time, I'll try to keep it simple. Jesus knows he's not the Father. Jesus also knows that he was sent from the Father. He, I actually believe as a Trinitarian, there is roles and ministry of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit works. And so he willfully submits himself to the Father. And even in the book of Revelation, it also says that Jesus has talks about God the Father being over him but it's in their relationship to one another so when jesus says i ascend to my father notice jesus didn't say i ascend to our father or i ascend to our god jesus has a special unique 
relationship with the Father. This is, what, again, going back to what I said earlier, Galatians 4, 1 John 4, talking about Jesus being the Son who was sent from the Father into this world, who took on our likeness, but he was with the Father in the beginning. He had the glory with the Father, said, Father, glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was, John 17, 5. So there's this special relationship. And I say this with complete humility right now, Stacey, and I'm not, not just a debate point right now. There is a special relationship that the Father and the Son have that we will never understand in this world until those of us who are truly born again enter into his presence and actually understand that. Because right now, we are finite. We cannot grasp that. But this is still a truth that the Bible teaches. How that worked with their roles in the ministry, I don't fully grasp that. But I also acknowledge that Jesus is by nature God who was with the Father before the world was. So you're saying he calls him my God, but that's not really what he meant. I did, but it's in reference to their relationship with one another. It's a special relation that they have. All right. So, John, there again, clearly it showed that the Father's the God in that passage. What about 17, where, he, where he's praying to the Father, and he says, um, you know the famous verse, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Mm -hmm. Notice he doesn't say God the Son. Mm -hmm. He calls him Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He's the anointed one. Mm -hmm. um, that's eternal life, to believe mm -hmm. the true God is the Father. And, and what? He sent the Son. And what else is a part of eternal life there, though? What? Read the whole verse, not just one part, all of it. This is eternal life, that they may know you. He's talking to the Father, verse mm -hmm. 1. Mm-hmm. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Just so making a correction. It says and. So eternal life is both knowing the Father and, and Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. Not just the Father, but also and Jesus, and Jesus Christ. Christ. They're together. They're one. Right. And Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, I and my Father are one in John 10, 30. So therefore they are one together. What's the, so he's saying you got to know God the Father, basically. The only true God, he's talking to the Father, and Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So you got an anointed man who's anointed with, I say it's the Father, you say it's the Trinity. Well, you say anointed man, not me. I say God come in the flesh. I reference Colossians 2, 9, Hebrews 1, 3, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Jesus claimed over and over to be literally the I am in the flesh. So you say anointed man, but I literally believe Jesus well, there was clothed with flesh, but he was still by nature God. Well, what does the word Christ mean? It means anointed for sure. All right, then. Well, what? Well, well, Jesus, who is God, was I'm the just anointed one. What it says, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm just going to say what eternal to life answer your is. Question, John Jesus. seventeen three. Do you know that John answers your question in First John five twenty? In First John five twenty, have you read that? Have you read yeah. that recently? He's revealing the Father. Have you read 1 John 5.20 recently? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me just read it out loud for the audience. Let me read it out as an answer to you. John writes, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 
It's showing both the Father and the Son combined together. That's what true life is. Therefore, Jesus is not a false God. And he's his one son. with his Father. Because you said earlier, Jesus is an anointed God. Well, if he's not the true God, then he's a false God. Well, he's the, he's the Father in the flesh. That's the one God of Scripture. But that passage is revealing the one who is true. It says, we may know him who is true. He's talking about the Father. So would you say Jesus, Jesus is not true is according to that then? You're asking your question. Would that imply Jesus is not true? He's revealing the one who is true. That's the Father. That's what it's saying. In his Son is how we have it. Okay. How do we have salvation? In his Son. That's uh -huh. eternal life. Right. That I was, agree with that. That was that was what uh, the John context puts them both together. They're actually united together in ministry and nature. Right, but there again, the one who is true, he's trying to he's revealing him, which is the Father. John 1 18, John 17, 3. Okay. Uh, how much time do I have, Donnie? We've got eight minutes left. Eight minutes, like like eternity. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are doing a great job. Awesome endurance. Um, yeah. All right. Just, so let's go to ahead. Hebrews one for a minute. So oh, if Jesus, thank you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds good. So if Jesus is um, eternal, besides the Father, why is He anointed? Why is He why is He made the, a Son in verse five? Why is he made a son? Yeah, why is he born? If he's already eternal, why is he why does he have to be born? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's a good question. So it says in Hebrews 1 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Can I just read for it a little bit more? And he again brings his firstborn into the world. Notice it says he again brings the firstborn into the world. So this son who was begotten, he was already the firstborn before he came into the world, showing his preexistence. Then it says, let all the angels of God worship who? The son. If Jesus is not by nature one with God the Father, that would be idolatry. Then you get to verse 8 that you were talking about before. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawless. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And then verse 10, Father, still speaking, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. This points back to Psalm 102. So when you see the whole context together, this unequivocally points to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ being the only begotten Son who was with the Father, the firstborn, before the creation of all things. So, so why does it say he's begotten? That's a great question. Now, right. that's, do you know what that word is in, in Greek? It's the word monogenes. Do you know yeah, what that, that means? Yeah, but that term is also used for the children of God in Matthew 5. Sure. It can be used first, in different places, no doubt, for sure. But first what, is, born, what is the basic construct? I'm only asking, so I want to be clear with you. When you think of only begotten, because I don't want to be thinking something different, monogenes literally means one of a kind, one unique one. So what does it mean to you? 
Yes, and that's, well, plus to go with the word firstborn. He's firstborn in the spirit is what it means. Is that um, what that context says? When it says firstborn, he's talking about in the spirit. So when he says he brings his firstborn in the spirit into the world? Right. His first, in, he's born into the world. He's born. How's he born? By the spirit. He's the one with the spirit. Interesting. First I don't know how you get that from that context. But what's your question again? Because I'm, I'm, I might be derailing here. So what's your, no, what's well, your question? Well, I just went over verse five. Well, let's go to um, verse eight. Um, when did he start reigning? When did the sun start reigning? Yeah. Trinitarians always use your throne. God is forever. Uh-huh. When did that start? But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And the Lord, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to end. But which of the angels do you ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, here's the thing. This is still prophetic as you, I think you would agree with me on this particular context, even though I know we have different eschatology. So Jesus has always been in rulership. He, God is always over the whole earth, but the kingdom to still come is still yet to come. Jesus Christ is not physically ruling this earth right now, but there is a time which all these things will be, submitted unto him to which then he'll give it back to the father it talks about that in first corinthians 15 but to answer your question there's no definitive answer because that still is still yet to come with the millennial reign but the truth of who jesus is who the father identifies is still true both old and new testament here so you're actually saying he's not even reigning yet when oh he no he is he's god's kingdom is still here but it's not here physically yet it's still coming so you're not calling when he went when he ascended. You're not saying he, he started raining. He still isn't raining yet. Is that what you're saying? To me, Jesus has always been raining. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus was still in control as God works off all things for the good. But prophetically, Jesus is still going to come back, even like Zechariah 14, which I know you're in eschatology, but it says the Lord will come back and he'll step on the Mount of Olives. And in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus Christ is the one who's coming back. But that still has not happened yet. So his physical kingdom is still yet to come. But yet Jesus Christ is still ruling, especially the spiritual authorities. We get to Colossians chapter 1. It talks about that we are transformed from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of his son. So the spiritual kingdom for sure, how that all works. Again, I don't have that figured out. But we are in his kingdom and Jesus has always ruled spiritually. So let's go to um, Colossians 1. Um, it says, um, this is like a prayer. It says, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, why does Paul use that phrase? If Jesus is also a God with the Father. 
Well, let me just correct a little bit of the word in there. So when I believe Jesus and the Father are by nature God, I believe they are one like how the Bible teaches Echad, a man and a woman are one together. They're one flesh. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that there are many members, but there's one body of Christ. Galatians 3, 28 says there's neither male nor female, nor slave, nor free, nor bond. We're all one in Christ. So the word one has the meaning of both the singular, but also this unity. So as a Trinitarian, and you claim to be a former Trinitarian years ago, you should know that, that there's this unity involved. But now how this phraseology, this is actually a question I love to use other ones, not necessarily yourself, but others, because it says grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a common thing that Paul says over and over and over. So therefore, if Jesus is the Father, why does Paul, I'm not saying this directly, but I'm just making a comment. Why does Paul always keep saying grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if they're supposed to be literally the one personage, right? It doesn't make any sense. So therefore, it shows both the Father and the Son are actually distinct persons, not one literally like a monster, but they're one together, but they're distinct persons. Therefore, this actually refutes, not directly you, even though you are a oneness, but you're a little bit different oneness, but this actually refutes most modalists, UPCI, Jesus only, because it shows Paul did not teach modalism. Let me jump in there uh, real quick, gentlemen. Um, that is time. But uh, since Kelly got the last word on the first round of 20 minutes, Stacy, if you want to have a quick final word there, and then we're going to jump into the closing statements. Well, in all these introductions and all these letters, whether Paul's the writer or Peter, James, John, Jude, they always put God as the father. Um, that's huge. They, they are Israelites. They know that God is the father. Um, that's why they always put Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is the father's name given to the son. Christ, he's anointed with the father, the father who's in him, and he's Lord over us. That's what that name means. But the word God is always associated with the father in every letter. So that's, and in a couple passages like, Paul, in this passage in Ephesians 1, he says, God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, showing um, clear separation that Jesus is not a God, the Son. I'm just making a point that it's, he's the Father in the Son. That's the point of Scripture. But he's the God. All right. Well, I appreciate that uh, fantastic discussion, Kelly and Stacy. Thank you so much for uh, keeping it engaging. Uh, just a really, really good discussion overall. Uh, Kelly, I, uh, I, in case there's some things you might want to respond to there, based on what Stacy said, we're going to be moving into uh, closing statements anyways. So we've got five minutes um, for you both to kind of wrap up your thoughts, wrap up your points, and then we'll move into an audience Q&A. So Kelly, I'll hand it over to you. you got five minutes. Thank you. Well, thank you, Stacey, and anyone else out there who's listening. Maybe you're oneness, maybe you're a different view, maybe you're Jehovah's Witness, maybe you're LDS, maybe you're even a Muslim. Um, my approach today was simple, uh, and I don't mean any disrespect to uh, Stacy. There was a lot of things, in fact, almost everything, quite a few things I brought up in my opening statement that Stacy did not respond to, um, and some of the things he was even given his response to was actually a part of his still opening. So it's kind of interesting. So I would encourage people to go listen to both the openings again and rebuttals just for the sake of it. But notice the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. The Bible says in Isaiah 44.24, 24, 
I, Jehovah, alone, the maker of all things, create, creating all things, spread out the heavens all alone. So it's clear. But yet the Bible says, Isaiah 64, 8, Lord, our Father, you are the maker, you're the potter, and we are the clay. Romans 11, 36 talks about the Father of the one who made all the worlds. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, God, our Father, maker of all things, through whom all things come into existence, and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom things, all things exist as well. But yet we see Jesus, John 1, 3, pointed of, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from not one thing came into existence that's come into existence, and that him is Jesus Christ, the Word that became flesh, verse 14 and on through 18. Jesus came to reveal the Father. So we see creation, the Holy Spirit, who is a distinct person. Jesus unequivocally taught that the Holy Spirit was a distinct person from himself and the Father. In John 14, 16, I said earlier, Jesus said, I will pray that the Father will send to you another helper. Alos paraclito. Another means another, the same nine, but distinct from, from oneself. So therefore, the Holy Spirit's not Jesus. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. And in fact, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to come to reveal and point people to Jesus Christ, John 16, verses 7 through 15, and to point people to trust in both the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit is also called God. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 18, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 17. All three are involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.32 states, God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that's a very fascinating statement. Yet the Bible says the Father raised Jesus. Jesus said, I will raise myself in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. And the Holy Spirit was involved. Romans 8, 11. We see all three. All three are involved in our salvation. What's the point? The Bible unequivocally teaches Old and New Testament that God is one. One what? Does he ever say anywhere at all? God is one person. The answer is no. Does the Bible ever say God the Son? As Stacey keeps saying like he does a lot of times. I'm not one of those that uses that phraseology, God the Son. But the very verse that Stacy blundered with, with Hebrews 1.8, saying that Jesus is actually called an anointed God, refutes his whole debate. The whole, the whole shabam went down the toilet when he said that. He called Jesus an anointed God. But he was a different God than the Father. Oops, what happened there, right? That's polytheism. But the fact is, Jesus is by nature God. And you keep reading that context, points to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ being called Yahweh from Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, points back to Psalm 102, verses 24, 25, and 26. The point is, all three are involved in no multiple places. I gave clear scriptures where in the Old Testament, God was seen. Many places. Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Um, Judges 5 and Judges 6 with Gideon. He saw the captain host, the Lord Yahweh. We, we didn't get to Zechariah 1, 2, and 3, but the angel of the Lord who is called Yahweh is praying and the Lord of hosts from heaven talks to the angel of the Lord who is called Yahweh on earth. One minute. I, thank you. Isaiah chapter 48, as I said earlier, the context of 12 through 16, the speaker is the first and the last Yahweh, the one who made all the heavens and the earth. And he says in the context, Yahweh, the Lord is speaking. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. That's prophetical. So you've got the Lord who is speaking, 
who then is sent by the Lord God and also the Spirit comes as well. That is fulfilled with Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 14. Very unequivocally states that Jesus was the Son, the only begotten Son. Even I pointed out to Stacy from Hebrews chapter 1, he was acknowledged as being the only begotten and the firstborn prior to coming into this creation, into this world. John states the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. This affirms Isaiah 48, 12 through 16. God is one, but he's also been revealed as a father, son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that, Kelly. Perfect timing again. Uh, thank you for that concluding statement. Now we're going to hand it to Stacy. You've got roughly uh, five minutes as well. If you take a few seconds extra, that's completely fine too. So Stacy, just make sure you unmute yourself and the floor is, the floor is yours for your concluding statement. All right. <clears throat> I showed tonight that the spirit in the Old Testament is the father in action. That's how the Israelites talked. The one spirit in scripture, as Ephesians says, is the father. He's the all in all. He is the one spirit of scripture. He is in us. He is in Jesus. He was the spirit in Jesus doing the works. John 14, 10. That's what it says. Um, the spirit to hover the waters. That's God. The spirit of God. The father is the God of the Old Testament as Many times it says in the Old Testament. So, and Kelly didn't go over much of it, what I said about the Old Testament uh, in my opening dialogue. It's always the one spirit, the God that Jesus everything even tells us to worship. Everything. There is one, one God and Jesus tells us in John 4, 23, we'll worship him in spirit. Never does it say worship a trinity or worship the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just the way God does everything. It's his Holy Spirit, singular. It's the Father who is the essence. The Father's the essence. He fills the Son. He is the Spirit. That's the essence. In the Trinity, you have the essence that has three persons involved. The problem is Trinitarians can't admit what the essence is. Um, the Eastern Trinitarians admit the Father is the essence. And that destroys it all once you once you realize the father is the god in the scriptures all the israelites know this that's why the lord of the old testament the father is the one that's coming that's what scripture clearly says he's the one god nobody can see that's why he has to put himself in a person it's not that there's a god spirit and there's a god man that's not what it's saying it's that god in that man that's why it's called Christ. It's very important to understand that word, which Trinitarians will ignore. The word Christ destroys the Trinity. Jesus is the anointed with the Father. It's the Father's good pleasure to fill the Son, not a Trinity. <clears throat> no Son ever fills the Son. There's no Holy Spirit God separate from the Father that fills the Son or fills us. It's always the Father who sends the Spirit, John 15, 26. He is the Spirit. It's His Holy Spirit. He said, I will put my Spirit in them. I'll write my laws on their hearts. That's the New Covenant language. But it's always in the singular because it's the Father. 
He is the one spirit. As Jesus um, clearly said, we're going to worship that spirit. Paul was clear. The one spirit is the Father. Just because you see terms in Scripture doesn't mean that's multiple gods. <clears throat> and that's what happened over centuries is they invented these three they made God into these three persons, and it's just completely unbiblical. To say that the Holy Spirit is not the Father is just reckless. It's just, it makes no sense. you got one Spirit that's the omnipresent Spirit called God the Father, but yet the Spirit is not God the Father. There's no logic behind it. <clears throat> and Jesus being the Son of God does not mean God the Son. <clears throat> He's born from the Father. That's why he's called Son of God. Uh, Matthew and Luke explains it this way. He's born from the Spirit. That's what firstborn means. He's not, he's not a firstborn before he's born. That's not even logical. That's not what it's saying. In fact, Acts 13.33, we didn't get to, shows that he's born in the Spirit. That's why he's called firstborn, when he was actually born. It's not a... He's a firstborn that hadn't been born yet. It's just no logic in the whole Trinitarian doctrine. You got this man that they call God and say, One minute. Everybody's seen God, but scripture's clear God's never been seen. Total blatant ignoring of what the scripture says. Foundation is that God's never been seen. He's an invisible, unapproachable light. <clears throat> but Jesus it's clear he's revealing the Father. He came to reveal the Father. He didn't come to reveal a son. He came to reveal God the Father. And that's the whole point of Scripture. The Father is the Savior of Scripture. He saves his creation. We worship him. Always in the singular. Always talking about God the Father. Even Jesus made direct statements and made it clear. You are the one true God talking about the Father. He's telling us to worship the Father. There's no room for anything else. Scripture's crystal clear. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, Stacy. thank you, uh, both Stacy and Kelly, for your uh, closing statements. Again, fantastic debate. Very engaging. Time has flown by. We've had a great, lively chat. A lot of uh, kind of mini debates going on in, in the chat as well. Um, and we've got a ton of great questions. So what I'm going to do is put the timer on and we'll get through as many of these questions as possible. Now, what we do, uh, gentlemen, on this channel, typically just uh, in order that we can move along uh, smoothly, whoever the question is for, we'll make sure they get the last word. Let's say the question's for Kelly. Uh, Kelly obviously gets to answer it. Uh, Stacy can uh, give some input as well. And then we would just give Kelly the, the final word. So why don't we get right into this then? And I'll go right back to the first question that came in a while back, almost two hours ago. Uh, so this one came in from Word Warriors. And this question is for Kelly. So the questioner asks, if no one has seen God, but they saw Jesus proves a trinity, when they saw the pre-incarnate Christ, were they not seeing God? Thank you. Could you say that one more time? Definitely. And what I'll do actually um, to make this easier for us, I'm going to post it in the chat and then put it up on screen. Okay. Okay, here we go. Word warriors, if no one has seen God, but they saw Jesus proves a, tr a trinity, 
when they saw the pre-incarnate Christ, were they not seeing God? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, speechless, you're hilarious, whoever you are, Mr. Warriors. Um, so this actually, again, this 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 just reemphasized the point that when it says in John 1, 18, no one has seen God in time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he is explaining. It's talking about no one has seen God the Father there in context. When you read 1 John 4, it talks about God sent his son into the world, the only begotten, but no one has seen God. The context there, again, is that no one has seen the Father. And Jesus himself unequivocally stated in John 6, 46, that no one has seen the Father. So therefore, by logical deduction, and seeing overwhelming evidence from Jesus in the New Testament, especially throughout the Gospel of John, claiming to be one with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was born, I am. I and my Father are one. In fact, Thomas says in my Lord and my God, all these different places that point to Jesus Christ. Well, he also had a pre-existence. And I said Jude 1.5 points that Jesus was the Lord who delivered them out of Egypt. All these places. So people in the Old Testament like Hagar, Moses, Gideon, different people, as I gave examples, saw God, but they didn't see the Father. Therefore, it proves the pre-incarnation, or sorry, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ before his incarnation, therefore pointing to that God is tri-unity. Thank you. I appreciate that response, Kelly. Uh, Stacy, go ahead if you had anything you wanted to add or a few points you wanted to make. Yeah, that's not logical at all. If the Bible says that God has never been seen because he's inapproachable, <clears throat> and they saw him in the Old Testament, they're seeing him through what's called theophanies. He's speaking through things, just like Hebrews writer says. He spoke in the prophets in many ways to the fathers in the Old Testament. And in the last days, that means when Jesus was on earth as a man, he spoke in the Son. It's the Father speaking. Why? Because the Father, the God of Scripture, is invisible. The entire point of Jesus is to reveal the Father. He reveals the one true God. 1 John 5.20, John 1.18. The one that he said that we should worship, the one true God, the Father. John 4.23. He's not saying that, oh, John, oh God, the one part of God's invisible, another part of God is visible. That's not what Scripture's saying at all. Go ahead. All right. Thank you, Stacy. Uh, Kelly, question was for you. So you get the last word. Go ahead. You know, it's just interesting. I, I find this, and this is not an insult to Stacy, it's just to people in general, because the context is so clear when you read these passages in the New Testament through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the logical deduction is that people did see God in the Old Testament, but they didn't see the Father. And that's the whole point. This again proves we got to go with what the scripture says and don't reword things. Don't make them say things they don't say. You agree with the text. You either don't like it or whatever, but you agree with the text and then you base your conclusions off of what it says with the scriptures in a proper context. Thank you, uh, Kelly. And also thank you, Stacy, for that. Uh, so here's more of a comment, but it did come in in the form of a super chat. So I got to get it up. Woo! Here for everybody. Uh, Alec Cox, I appreciate the support. We've had a ton of great support uh, in the chat for this epic debate, everybody. So thank you so much. You guys are the life and blood of this channel. So Alec, I appreciate the support. He says, Jesus Christ is God. 
Revelation 1, 8, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Jesus Christ said that. Uh, not really directed at anybody, but uh, if Stacy, Kelly, if you guys wanted to kind of respond or add a few points, go ahead. Stacy, we can start with you. <laughs> well, this is a he's this is just talking about Revelations one. This is really it's really talking about the Father. Um I don't know how people miss this, but he's talking about this is talking about God the Father. Um in Revelations one. It says, um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn. But when it talks about um, the one that's the um, Alpha and Omega is the Lord God, the Almighty. Um, people just gloss over this. They miss they miss what that chapter is actually saying. But um, anyway, <laughs> I, I can go with it because the Father's in him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But that's actually not what that verse means. All right. Well, I appreciate again the uh, super chat and the comment, Alec. I appreciate the uh, response. Stacy, we'll hand it over to you, Kelly. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, just, just kind of looking at the verses, just a few verses before I say it said in verse five, it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and received us, released us, sorry, from our sins. By his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and ever and ever forever. And amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even to those who pierced him. Even to those who pierced him. All the tribe of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Jesus said when he comes back, all eyes would see him. He would gather his elect from the four corners of the earth back in um, Matthew chapter 24. And you're reading it on from verses 28, 29, 30, 31, all that over there. The great tribulation. All eyes would see him. Who was the one that was pierced? The son was pierced, not the father. No reference of the father ever being pierced. In fact, Zechariah 12, 10 says they would look upon whom me whom they have pierced, talking about the son, the son was pierced. Jesus is the son. He's not the father. Therefore, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Fascinating because the question was also the first and last. Just give me a moment here. In verse 17, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, right? Go back to the end of the chapter, Revelation 22. And who is identified at the end of the chapter as the first and the last? In chapter 22... There's a new Bible it's sticking, sorry. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, who is this one? Well, Jesus said he's the first and the last. He's the one coming. And if you look at the end of it, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Come who? Come. Amen. Lord, Father. What? It says, amen. Come, Lord, 
Jesus. The Father is not the context of Revelation 1.8. It's Jesus, not the Father. Well, I appreciate that response, uh, Kelly. Thank you both to Stacy, Kelly, and Alec. As I said, we're getting a ton of amazing support for this debate. Lots of great feedback. Alyosha, I appreciate the $50 super sticker and another super chat here in the form of a question. This one's for you, Kelly. This one comes in from Walter Robertson. Thank you so much for the support and question. So he says, uh, Matthew 10, 18 to 20. And Luke 12, 11 to 12, these are parallel passages of the same event. He asks, explain. In the Matt passage, it states the spirit of Father gives the words to speak. And yet in the Luke passage, the Holy Spirit gives words. just want to read those verses here. So Matthew 10, 18 through 20 says... And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. And when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in an hour, in that hour, what you should say. For it is not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And Luke, sorry, Luke 12, 11 through 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you have to say. So I, I know Walter Robinson. He's been on my channel numerous times, had debates with him. He's a wonderful guy. I love him. I'm praying for him. I really mean that with all sincerity and pray that he blessed your ministry there, Don. But the funny thing is this, though. It's the same context. It says, for it is not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your father. That's in reference to the Holy Spirit here. So the same context here would be also with Luke chapter 12. Now, I have no objection, even if it was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because actually all three are ascribed in different places of the Gospels. This, again, shows the triunity of God working together. That's how they all work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Father works in different ways. The Son works in different ways. And the same thing with the Holy Spirit. And you, Walter, as I know you, you know this well enough. You've been around the Bible long enough to know context, context, context. Jesus repeatedly makes it abundantly clear that he is not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. And in these both of those contexts, the Spirit of the Father would be in context the reference of the Spirit being the Holy Spirit, which goes with Luke chapter 12. So I actually see these things uniting together in that proper context. Thank you for that answer and response. Kelly, uh, Stacy, if you wanted to add, uh, you know, a, a quick few points, go ahead. Again, the New Testament um, gets its foundation from the old. The Spirit in the Old Testament is the Father's own Spirit. That's why it says His Spirit. It doesn't say our Spirit. Um, it's always the Father's Spirit. Um, there's one Spirit. This this is just crazy talk. It says one spirit's the Father, worship the Father, yet some reason the Spirit's three beings. It's just not even possible. In scripture never hints that Jesus was a man that had that spirit in him who was the Father, the one spirit. I mean, that's what scripture says. So this these passages, they had the spirit of the Father. Well, yeah, that's the spirit we all have, the spirit of the Father. I will put my spirit on them. That's what it says. Singular. 
If I said, I'm going to give you my whatever, it's part of, it's mine. It's me. It's not me and other two other people. It's me. When I say my spirit, it's my spirit. It's the same thing with God. That's what he's saying. To say the Holy Spirit is not the Father is just, it's just reckless. It's just ignoring the scriptures. And so Kelly just took these two passages and made them into two people. <laughs> it's basically two spirits is what he's saying. Um, because if the Holy Spirit is not the Father, then you got two spirits. All right. Well, thanks for that response. Uh, Stacy Kelly, question was for you. Go ahead. Last word. It'd be nice if Stacy actually read the verse. It says, it is not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your father, not my father. No word my is in these words here at all. Nothing. The spirit of your father. And in the same thing in Luke 12, it says the Holy Spirit. Again, this goes back to the emphasis of John 17 a little while ago about, he says, my God and your God, my father and your father. He didn't say our father, like Stacey just said. That's the That again proves the context pointing to the triunity. Words have meanings. It goes back to what he was just saying, like John 16. 15 different times, Jesus makes a reference to the Holy Spirit distinctly. 13 times to himself and twice to the Father. Words have meanings in their proper context. So, again, this points to how Jesus says in these times, the Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit will guide and lead you. There's no contradiction there at all. It actually reaffirms what's already been said. Thank you for that response, Kelly. Thank you uh, to both Stacy and Kelly for some great engagement on these questions. So here's the next one comes in uh, in the form of a super chat again. I appreciate the uh, support. Uh, comes in from stupid pardon turkey energy. That's a mouthful right there. So <laughs> uh, question is, it looks like it's for you, Stacy. Um, the questioner asks, what does Stacy make of the fact that the phrase God the Son is found in early church writings such as the Athanasian Creed. Well, there again, that's not in the scriptures. I mean, these are all creeds were man-made um, list of beliefs made by polytheistic nations. All these, all these guys are influenced by Plato. They're influenced by their surroundings. All of these nations were worshiped multiple gods. Nothing like America. I mean, we. We have no idea what these guys went through um, to to get the Bible through all these cultures. It was all tainted through these polytheistic mindsets. Um, God the Son is not in the Bible. He's Son of God because he's born of the Father. I mean, yeah, there's no weight to this statement. All right. Thank you uh, for that response, Stacey. Kelly, go ahead if you'd like to add anything. This could be the first time in this debate we actually have something in common. Way to go, Stacy. There's hope for you after all. Um, yeah, the phrase, you know, myself as a Trinitarian, I generally do not, I, do, I don't use the phrase God the Son. Now, theologically, do I believe that's biblically accurate? Sure, that the theology for sure. I mean, actually, Stacy pointed out a little while ago in his blunder with Hebrews 1.8, talking about Jesus an anointed God. Well, in the context of Hebrews 1.8, the Father calls the Son... God. So therefore, by biblical theological definition, God the Son would be inferred there, no doubt about it. But in response to the creeds, the Athanasian or whatever else, a lot of the creeds back in those days were dealing with heresies of the early church, with the Arians, with modalism, with Gnosticism, with the Ebonites, Judaizers and other groups. So a lot of these creeds over time were written by Christians 
to actually give a theological response. Like what if you go to a church website, a church ministry, you go to my website, rootinchrist.org, you'll go to an about us section and you'll see an about us section where I have a statement of faith, where I kind of declare and give scriptures for what I believe. Same thing with churches. The Athanasian Creed or the Creeds, what they were doing was they were presenting what they believed theologically was true. Theologically true. So the phrase God the Son was used. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Is the, the phrase God the Son in the Bible? No. And nowhere will you see one spirit, meaning God is only one spirit in the Bible as well. That phrase is not there either. But do we see things that teach these things in context? That's what the point of exegesis is versus eisegesis. Thank you for that, Kelly. And uh, Stacy. the question was originally directed at you. So if you wanted a quick final word, go ahead. Yeah, Kelly said all night, one spirit's not in the Bible. It's clearly in the Bible. It's explained in detail, actually. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We have one spirit, the Father, the all in all, above us all, in us all, and through us all. There's only one spirit. If you don't have one spirit, you got more than one God. There's one spirit, and it's the Father. All right. Well, I appreciate it, uh, Stacy and Kelly. So this one, um, another super chat from the same questioner. Another, uh, Actually, this one's for you this time, Kelly. Um, so the question is, what is the difference between a being and a person? That's a good question. Uh, real quick, just a quick clarity. I've never said the Bible does not say one spirit. That, those words by itself. I've never, I was saying what you said earlier, Stacy. no phrase that ever say God is only one spirit. That's what I said. So I, yeah, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the one spirit. You can see one spirit over and over and over. I did not deny that. I just want a clarification on that. Uh, what's the difference between the definition of being and person? Well, anyone can look up online. You can see different, the, uh, different dictionaries and see different things that are stated. Uh, when you look up the definition of being, it can have the, the meaning of both uh, some kind of existence or it also could be in reference to an actual person or person ends or people or whatever else. So it really depends upon how you understand what words mean. Both being and person can have the same meaning, but it also will depend upon how it's being used in context. For example, if I said to you, be, how have you been lately, right? That wouldn't make any sense, right? But if I said, how are you doing today? That would make much more sense. So it'd be used in the wrong context, right? So being in the sense of when you look it up can have the meaning of existence or something to do with person or people or whatever else. I'm only seeing myself now. Is that intentional? Oh, what yeah, yeah. No, you're, okay. you're, you're good. Hey, how you doing? So anyway, so it just depends. <laughs> it just depends. I thought we were all three together. See, I thought we were showing the triunity. We were all one together. But anyway, um, that's a simple answer. It depends on how you look up words. You can look up the word love. Love, according to the Bible, has many different ways how the word love can be used in the Bible. It could be agape. It could be phileo. It could be uh, an affectionate, like, between a husband and wife, eros. Uh, there can be different ways how words can have different meanings depending upon their context. So that's how I would respond to that. All right. I appreciate that uh, response there, Kelly. Stacy. if there's anything you wanted to add, uh, a few points you wanted to make, go ahead. Well, Trinitarians don't like to use the word being. They use the word person because it's vague. It's just characteristics. And they use the old version of what the word means. Being is actually basically the same word as person in the dictionary. Um, but they don't like that word being because it 
exposes what they really believe, which is three gods. Um, the Father is the one God of Scripture, <clears throat> um, and they want to say three persons to keep it vague. But being and persons is the same thing. They believe in three beings, um, it, and it make it just makes it sound makes their doctrine sound worse. That's why they don't like to use it. All right, thank you, Stacy Kelly. Go ahead. Final word is yours. Well, it's funny because on my some of my notes I had up here, I actually had the definition of being both from the Merriam-Webster and the Cambridge Dictionary. Both of them are essentially the same. And it says this: the quality or state of having existence, being. Uh, it also can have in reference to something that exists or people that exist or something that has consciousness. Therefore, it could be living persons or something in general in existence. So therefore, again, emphasizing, and this is current, not old, definitions of how that word being and person can be used interchangeably and also, depending upon the context, differently. All right. Thank you so much, um, Kelly. So here is... The next question, I put it in the chat again. This is another super chat. Uh, there's a lot of people saying that they have asked, uh, you know, questions and we haven't gotten to them yet. But that's because, guys, I got to get to the super chats first because these came in uh, in the form of donations. You know, people are paying to ask these questions. So I got to I gotta get these ones out of the way first and get this, some of the other ones. So uh, this one comes in from One God is Now Here. I appreciate the super chat and support. This one is for you, Stacy. Um since the word us is plural, please name the persons who state, let us make man in our image at the end of Genesis chapter one. Go ahead. Well, I get in these debates and they usually don't bring this passage up anymore because they know a lot of scholars have exposed this. Um, God is used singularly over 7,000 times, but in four passages, us is used because there's other beings around God when he's talking. Same thing here in Genesis. Let us make man in our image. Um, he's talking to the heavenly host, the angels, who's around him as he's creating. If you go to Job 38, 7, the angels watched as God created. Um, so that's to us. We are like angels in Scripture. Jesus said we'll be like angels in heaven. Uh, we entertain angels unawares. I mean, the angel, the serpent in the garden knew good and evil, just like God. God looked at um, the serpent and said, now they know good and evil, just like us. He uses the us there in Genesis 3.22. He's talking to the serpent who knew good and evil as he tricked Eve in verse 5. There are only two people in the garden, and, and they both knew about good and evil. And that's what us just represents. He's not saying us and then everywhere else in scripture, he says by himself. <clears throat> it's all about context, like Kelly likes to say. <laughs> but there's people around him, and that's the point. Because if you go to Genesis 1.27, he it then says he made male, female, he and him. He uses singular terms. It's always in the singular when it comes to creation, except in, in this passage, and it's just talking about the angels who's watching as he creates. Some people like to use the us as um, a majesty term. The reason I don't accept that, because of the specificity of these passages that it's used, number one. Number two, it wouldn't use the majesty in just a couple places if you got thousands and thousands of terms for God 
it would use it everywhere. So I believe, um, like a lot of scholars, that it's clearly the angels that are present is who, who is what they're talking about. All right. Thanks for that uh, answer there, Stacy. I will hand it over to Kelly. If you had any points or anything you wanted to add, go ahead. Yeah. So the Bible says here in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you read all the verses going down the line. God, 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 right? And then verse 26, it says something just a little bit different now. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, Stacy just said that he believed he was talking to the heavenly host, the angels. That's a huge, big no-no. Um, because now, therefore, when he says, let us make man, God and the angels created man together. Therefore, Isaiah 44, 24 goes down the drain because it talks about God alone is the one who made all things. But yet here, Stacy just acknowledged it would be angels. That's a huge no-no. Now, what Stacy did say right a minute ago is context. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And then God said, says here, and God created man in his own image. So it went from plural to singular again. Again, showing that it has nothing to do with angels. You take that out, has nothing to do with it. The royal we gets flushed down the toilet. That didn't come into existence until roughly 1200 AD. That argument is old and stale. Don't try and use it. It's false. And But if you go to Genesis 5, notice this. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were made. So again, it affirms angels have nothing to do with this here. Now, as I said earlier, and I'll say again, both work, the oneness of God and the triunity of God. God is the creator. But the Bible says the Father was involved with creation, Isaiah 20, 64, 8, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Jesus is involved. He was before all things. Hebrews 1, 2, 10 through 12 talks about that. The aeons, as he talked about before, yeah, the ages, the existence of all things. That's what's really being literally being said by the word aeons. And when you look at um, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, Revelation 3, 14, you look at other scriptures with the Holy Spirit, Psalm 104, verse 30, Job 33, verse 4, Genesis 1, 2. It shows how all three. So when God said, let us, it's talking in context as a package. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is in context. What's going on here? Not angels. There's no angels. And if you read, as you alluded to, Stacey, funny, Job 38, 7 says, And when the morning stars sang together, the sons of God shouted for joy. You show me a reference in Job chapter 30. It has anything to do with angels being involved with the creation of man. And the man was created in the, in the image of angels. And I'll, 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 I'll leave Trinitarianism right now. There's no context there at all. Context, context, context. Well, you're in bad shape, my friend. Oh, help me. <laughs> the morning stars is a reference to Satan in scripture. He was an angel. Sons of God are references to angels in the Old Testament. Um, Kelly just said God is used in creation in all those passages except in that verse 26. Well, notice it's in the singular every time. So it's definitely not a trinity. 
Not to mention it says made in our image. So think about our image. Are we a trinity? No. It's God the Father talking, and he's talking amongst his angels. He's not saying they're creating, but he's saying that we're made in an image like them. Here's Satan in the garden, and he says, you will know good and evil like God. And, and so Adam and Eve sins, and God says, now they are like one of us. He's talking to the serpent. I'm sorry, but that is now they're in the image of the serpent because they know good and evil. Completely ignoring the text of, of this passages. It's all about what they're talking about because God is talking to the serpent, and now they're like one of us. Clearly, that's what it's talking about. And if you're talking about a trinity in creation, if you go to Psalms 8, 6, this is a prophecy about Jesus. And it says, um, it is um, all the works are of your hands. It's the Father that's doing it in Jesus. He's the one creating in the Christ. That's why if you notice, it always says in Christ or through Christ because it's always the Father. Um, it never is saying that Jesus is back there creating with the Father in Genesis. It's nowhere. It's nowhere. That one reference to us is clearly talking about angels, just like in Isaiah 6. Who's around the one on the throne? It's angels. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, uh, this has been a fantastic debate. Let's get through a couple more of these questions. Uh, this might be in the top debates that I've moderated in terms of the amount of questions that have come through. So I hope you're ready to be here for another 10 hours. I'm <laughs> just kidding. We're just going to uh, make sure we get through the super chats and then we'll have to uh, wrap it up because, wow, we're at two and a half hours. So. Uh, what a lively chat and uh, so many great questions. So uh, this one now comes in again, a super chat. I appreciate the support from Adam Man Carmichael. This one, I believe, is for you, uh, Stacy. Oh, yeah. OK, so he says, uh, Stacy, if God has not always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what was the Unitarian God's reason for creation? Was it because he was lonely or wanted to rule over something? first off he's god he's called the father because he created and now he has beings calling him father because he's their creator holy spirit is how israel is how the israelites use god in action it's his spirit it's a way of explaining an omnipresent spirit in his creation um so that's why the terms father and holy spirit the term son son denotes birth you had a man that's born that the father is in. That's why he's called the Christ. So that's why you get those three terms in scripture, father, son, Holy Spirit. But they're all operated by the father. He's the one God of scripture. Um, as far as the being alone thing, we don't have any teaching about. All we know is the reason God created us is to worship him. It was in his good pleasure. That's what scripture's about. It's all about his creation to worship him. Um, anything about loneliness and God, it's not in it's not in scripture. All right. Thank you, Stacy. And of course, Kelly, if you wanted to add anything, make any uh, points to that, go ahead. I'm still confused on the question. Can you put it up one more time? <laughs> yeah, no problem. I think I still got it here. Let me see. Stacy, even take an attempt to answer that question. I give you props because my head hurts on this question. 
Uh, I'm scrolling up. I hope I didn't lose it. Um, you know what? I think I might have. All right. Well, something to do with uh, the Unitarian God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit were not in existence, but it was the Unitarian God. Then why did the Unitarian God create creation? Was he lonely? Something like that. I did that get it. Yeah, they were right here. Right here. It looks like you remembered it almost perfectly, State or uh, Kelly. If, if God has not always been Father, Son, Holy yeah, whoever Spirit. that was, because they obviously gave you a, a donation. So uh, way to go, support. That's great. I think it's awesome. Um, the the question just is is I need an Advil after this one. So um, I, I get it though. Uh, why did God? You know, if He's Unitarian, was He lonely? That's a good question. Even if this was sent to a Trinitarian. Even if it was said to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why did God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three, the triunity, create all creation? That's a question I don't really know, even if anyone can answer, really, other than what Scripture says. God loved us. God created us to have uh, lives here. He did it intentionally. He loves us. He wants us to have fellowship and union with him. Uh, he wants us to be saved and have eternal life and things like that. Uh, but there's a lot of questions that we really can't answer in this world. Even some of the things that I answered to Stacy earlier, I said, we go with by what the scriptures teach in their context and their clarity. We don't reinterpret it to fit our Jesus. like a lot's been going on tonight. We want to go with what the text says. And then we base our views on what God says and his word, what's been given to us. Now, we may not understand. There's things that I don't understand. How can God... Always be everlasting, everlasting. The Bible says it. Psalm 90, verse 2. The Bible says God knows all things. The Bible says that he's, you know, holy and all these other things, right? There's lots of things that we know are true, but we don't always fully grasp it. So creation, I think to myself, I have a little glimpse of it, but I don't fully grasp it. So whether it's a Unitarian or Trinitarian perspective, I think we're all still kind of say, well, thank you that we have a brain. We now need to make a decision. Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust what God has revealed to us, or are we going to trust what man tells us to believe? And we got to be careful not to trust what other people say or our own imaginations, but base it on God's word. All right. Thank you, uh, Kelly. Stacy, did you want a quick final word there or move on to the next question? No, it's, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are great. You guys are great. You, listen, you guys made for an, uh, an amazing debate uh, tonight. And again, I have to apologize to everybody in the chat. I'm really sorry that, you know, I'm sure there's a ton of people. We're not going to get to your question, but there are a lot of questions tonight. So, which is awesome, which is awesome. Uh, a lot of interaction and engagement here. So this one comes in again from Walter Robertson. Uh, I appreciate the support for Kelly. He needs to send me some donations, man. This Walter guy, <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> Looks like Walter's coming at you. You're having a, a second debate here, uh, Kelly. You versus Walter. Walter, if you want to keep sending me money, and I'll answer you later. There you go. <laughs> anyway. So Walter says, um, he says, earlier you said Jesus could not be the Holy Spirit, but handle these back-to-back -back verses. Acts 16, 6 to 7, 6 having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Hmm. So it's interesting, Walter, if you were paying attention, I said that Jesus could not be the Holy Spirit. And that's a very clear statement. Uh, and I'll, I'll reaffirm it. And, and I'm looking at these scriptures right now because I saw it up there. 
And it says this. This is what it says. They passed through Phythurgen and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. It didn't say Jesus did not permit them. It said the Spirit of Jesus. And in the context of the verse before, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are one and the same here. That's the clear context here. But even at worst, maybe it was also Jesus and the Holy Spirit did not permit this to happen. I'll go with the worst possible conclusion. It still does not prove oneness. Again, it would still reaffirm the unity, the triunity of God. But I believe in context here, my friend Walter, anyone else listening, the context rules. The Holy Spirit is spoken of in verse 6, and the Spirit of Jesus again being reaffirmed, talking about the Holy Spirit. So I would go with those two working together, not against each other. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, you know what, what, what we'll do, Stacey, is we're going to get one of these questions uh, that are directed at you. So we'll, we'll kind of take turns here and maybe have like a speed round. Yeah. Cause um, I want to, I want to answer that. Yes. Okay. You know what? Go ahead then. Then if you want to add a few points. To that, yeah. Kelly ahead. just stepped on his own beliefs because when Trinitarians speak, they always admit the spirit of Christ is separate from the Holy spirit and the spirit of the father to make sure the Trinity is is real when you say the spirit of christ is the holy spirit you've just squashed the trinity because you're saying the holy spirit is christ god that's not how trinitarians talk they always Can you say that again because i got lost Can you say that again yeah a trinitarian always speaks as the spirit of christ being a, is a part of christ himself not part of the holy spirit the same with the spirit of the father they always separate them to make sure you know they are Trinity. They don't never step over and say the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit um, because that goes against how they teach the Trinity. So by saying Jesus is, that was the Holy Spirit in Jesus, <laughs> that's definitely oneness because that's the Father in Jesus who we say is the Holy Spirit. But a Trinitarian doesn't speak like that. They keep them separate. The Spirit of Christ is an actual thing. That's an actual term they use. Um, but if you want to say that, I'm fine with it. All right. Go ahead, Kelly. A question was uh, for you. Get the last I word. just think Stacy needs to actually read the verses because he didn't speak to what the verses actually say. And I don't mean that any bad way. Again, I, I think I'll just go with what I said before. I think it was clear. Uh, the context is pretty simple to read. So thank you, Walter, though. And uh, he blessed this guy's ministry. Way to go, Walter. I appreciate that. Uh, what's good is this question. This is one question, but we probably had about 10 questions uh, that were just worded slightly, but it was kind of the same question in one. So this one comes in from the layman's seminary and he asks to Stacy, how can the spirit go back to the father if they are the same person? Uh, that's John 16, 28. The spirit came from the father is going back to the father. That's what it says. That would be exactly what would happen if the father came in a man and then went back to being God. That's exactly what would happen. It doesn't say this Christ went back to himself. If a trinity's real, Jesus would go back to being God the son. It doesn't ever say that. 
It said the spirit of the father came from the father and it goes back to the father. If, if it was a God, the son, it would say God, the son came into Jesus and then God, the son left Jesus. If there's a complete eternal distinction, it's of course the whole thing's inventions. It's invisible. It's nowhere in scripture. God, Jesus, spirit went back to the father. That's, that's definitely oneness. It did not go back to being God, the son. It says it went back to the father. Why would it go back to the father? There again, it's always the father because he's the God of the Bible. Who? What is heaven? Heaven is the father's house. Our spirit cries, Abba, father. Everything is, will say father because that's the God of scripture. All right. Thank you, Stacy and uh, Kelly. Go ahead. Four, zero. I've got all my fingers in the spots here. Come on, <laughs> Kelly. All right. Let's do a John recap. I can't get them all. My fingers don't have enough space here. Uh, John 3.13, Jesus says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he talks about, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. So the Son came into the world. The Son was sent from the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So the, the bread was not the Father. Jesus is called the bread in verse 35. I am the bread, not the Father. I am the bread. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. I, Jesus, have come down from not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That's the Father. All that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise up the last day. This is the will of my Father. Right? So the Father. First cha John chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, Jesus says this. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. I am not alone, but I am my Father who sent me. It is in your law has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. You get over here to John 14, and you get over here to verse 12. As I shared earlier, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he would do also greater works than these because he would do because I go to the Father. John 16 has nothing to do with the Spirit. Where did that word come from? We don't know in verse 28, do we? Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you and cause you loved me. And believe that I came from the Father, not the Spirit. I, Jesus, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world, going back to the Father. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify together me with you, yourself, the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's nothing about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit did not come till after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead. Thank you, Kelly, for that response. And Stacy, if you want a quick uh, final word, since I believe the question was for you, go ahead. Well, <clears throat> everything Kelly was saying is about going back to the Father and, and, or going to the Father, or Jesus was speaking about the Father. That's because that's the God he's speaking to, and the God he knows and the God he prays to. So all that is true, but G, but he Kelly's all night brought up the passages about God, Jesus being sent. Being sent is a term of a man in Scripture. He's not sent from heaven as a man. 
the spirit came from heaven, came down from heaven. That's what it's talking about. As both of the um, birth testimonies say in Luke 1 and in Matthew 1, it's the spirit that came down in Jesus. But when the Bible, when scripture says sin, it's a term of man. Um, John was sent, John 1, 5. Um, we are sin. The apostles were sin. Um, sin is just a term when somebody goes to do something for God. Um, it does not mean a man actually came down from heaven. That's not what it is saying. What came down from heaven was the spirit of God that came into Jesus. That's why he says he came down from heaven and I'm in heaven. He's talking about the Spirit of God, or you can say the Father. It's, it's all the same. It's the Father in Jesus, as Jesus says all over, um, who is the one Spirit. Um, but yes, yeah, sent is just a term of man, because um, Jesus is not the only one that says sent. John was sent. The apostles were sent. That's not a good argument. If you read John chapter 17. All right. Well, this one comes in from Magnificent Prophet, and we're going to start winding it down here because, you know what, we got through a ton of questions, though. This has been a, an awesome debate, an awesome Q&A, but we are coming up at the three-hour mark, and I want to respect the debater's time. Uh, you know, Stacy and Kelly, thank you so much for this. Um, so Magnificent Prophet asks for Stacy, but why did Jesus say in Revelation 1, 17 to 18, he was dead and alive? and forevermore. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. He was dead and alive, and now he's forever. That's a true statement. I mean, I don't know what he wants me to say. Okay, go ahead. No, no, that's true. <laughs> he's resurrected. Uh, did you want to add anything, Kelly? Or Sure, can you read it again? Put it up sure, there? yeah, no problem. Um Actually, this one was like from 200 comments before. Oh, okay. so. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go off memory. So, you know, why is he he called? Why is Jesus called uh, be, being spoken of being dead and resurrected if he is the same, you know, spirit, same person kind of thing? I think that was kind of the just of what the question was. So if you read it, John 117 says, when I saw him, John says, when I saw him, who? I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, so who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Do not be afraid. I saw, sorry, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. The father was never dead. I was dead. Jesus is the one that died up on the cross and rose again, not the father. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forever. Behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. Again, this again, even if, I mean, I'll say this openly. Even if the Trinity was not true, this verse of itself would whack smack in the face and uppercut TKO going down for the count and you can't come back up from it because this proves Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the one who took on flesh and died upon the cross. You cannot find a single reference that the Father is the one that died on the cross. It's always Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man that was sent from the Father in heaven. And Jesus said over and over, I came from heaven, as I said before. He's not just a man. He is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Yahweh. He's the first and last. He came as what took on flesh. He's the one that gave his life for us. 
He's the one that rose again, not the father. Therefore, of anything at all, this would refute modalism. Checkmate. Thank you for that response, Kelly and Stacy. Quick final word. I know that question was directed at you. Yeah, um, God is immortal. He never dies. Jesus was a man. He died. The mediator for us is a man, Christ Jesus. So the man is who died, and the Father resurrected him. The Father was a spirit in Jesus. That's the whole point of Scripture. It doesn't say that God died. If the Trinity's real, they got a problem because part of their God died. That's not biblical. Um, scripture is clear. The man died. The man is our mediator, the flesh. Um, Jesus said um, when he was resurrected, he said, the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see here. Um, an actual God doesn't die. God's immortal. The, the human died. That's the sacrifice, the sinless human life. That's what scripture teaches. Can I say one quick thing to Stacy? Is it okay, Stacy? Yeah, go ahead. You said God is not the one that died. Jesus is the man. He's the mediator, the man, right? Right. In Hebrews 9, 15, and 16, just want to go off what you said. We're probably breaking rules. I'm sorry. That's For okay, this yeah. reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions for those committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance for where there's a covenant is, there must be the necessity of the death of the one who made it. Who is the one that gave us the first covenant in the old Testament? God, right? Therefore to establish a new covenant, God would have to be the one to give his death to establish a new covenant. Just wanted to add that. You can respond. Yeah, and he left him at the cross. The spirit left. All right. Scripture can't contradict scripture. And immortal God read, doesn't read die. Hebrews 9, 15, and 16 later to what you just uh, said. You're twisting it again as usual. Twisting everything. God doesn't die. He's immortal. we got to quit ignoring I passage. still love you, Stacey. Just read it later. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are making for a great debate. Let's end it with this last question here. Um, this one's not really specified towards anybody let me just read it real quick and we'll know who it's for um chat is flying so let me see here um actually i might have <laughs> actually lost it already so that's fine. i have to wrap up here I've yeah yeah let, let's wrap it up a anybody in the chat i appreciate all your questions it's been a great debate kelly stacy thank you so much uh as well i thank everybody in the audience for your support for showing up for this uh we're just going to give the debaters uh kelly and stacy uh some quick final words final thoughts if you want plug your channels plug your ministries and then we're going to call it a night it's been three hours and uh, wow what a debate so let's start with you kelly thank you so much for being uh, generous with your time uh, tonight for this important debate I any final words final thoughts uh, happy uh, day after Thanksgiving to all my fellow Americans. I'm an American as well. Merry Christmas coming up. Lord bless you. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you come to know him truly, the Jesus Christ of the Bible, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just some mere creation, but he is the eternal one who took on flesh, gave his life for you. And if you put your complete trust in him, you'll be saved. Amen. Thank you for those final words, Kelly. And again, thank you so much for giving us your time for tonight. Stacy. thank you as well for being here and giving us your time. Three hours. Again, I, I got to thank you guys so much for an awesome debate. Um, uh, Stacy. final words, final thoughts. 
Um, I agree with Kelly, believe in the one true God and Jesus Christ who he sent. Let's get that part right. But uh, yeah, I appreciate this channel. Um, this is the best channel to be on, Standing for Truth and Donnie. Um, excellent debates every week. Um, come and join him. Um, Kelly, enjoy it, buddy. Good luck with everything in your move and all. For sure. Um, yep. Um, yeah, it's been a pain in the butt, but I thank you for it. People have been praying for me, and yeah. even had a few people from the state said they would love to come help me, but they can't. So, well, yeah, I've been praying for you. So, but I uh, appreciate the debate again, and um, I enjoyed it. Three hours. <laughs> Three hours. Wow. Well, you guys got uh, fantastic endurance, uh, Kelly. I'll be praying for your move, brother. I'm all the way in Canada. I'm stuck in Canada. Unfortunately, I can't come help you. Well, I'm in uh, Canada. Where are you at? Ontario. Oh yeah. Well, I'm on Vancouver Island. There you go. <laughs> a couple of Canadians. Um, or well, I'm American. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> or else I'd come help. So Kelly, Stacy, Stacy, I appreciate the, uh, you know, the kind words there about the channel. Uh, again, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you as well to everybody in the audience for your awesome support and questions. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you.